Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. It's time to strap our boots on. This is a perfect day to die Wipe the blood out of our eyes In this life there's no surrender And there's nothing left for us to do Find the strength to see this through
once again for coming to Bard's Logic Political Talk, part of the conservative conversation. And finally, on this episode, we will have the much-awaited Mark Hankel on uh, to the show. We're waiting on some weeks to, to have him on, uh, who is the national polygamy advocate. Uh, so looking forward to our uh, conversation uh, for some upcoming events. I been trying for, for some time to get uh, Josh Manziel, uh, who is running for the Senate. And I was actually at an event this past Monday where, lo and behold, guess who I bumped into? Josh Mandel. <laughs> so uh, I talked to him and, and his uh, political director, and we're going to schedule something to have him on the show uh, in the subsequent week. So looking forward to uh, having uh, Josh on and having a conversation with that. Again, he's running for the U.S. Senate. So we'll be having him uh, onto the show. I'll give some updates as, you know, I get them. Uh, so I just got, you know, some calls out. Of course, we got to, uh, you know, schedule things. And we've got a couple uh, exciting episodes coming up that I'm not going to re- reveal yet. Perhaps we'll give a little bit of a allusion to it tonight on this episode on uh, some topics we're going to be talking about in the near future. Uh, but let's go ahead and welcome our guest now, Mark. Uh, Thank you very much, Mark, uh, for coming to the show. Thank you very much, Mark, for coming to the show. How are you today? I'm very well. Thank you so much for having me, Robert. I appreciate it. Well, you're welcome. It's been, uh, well, frankly, years since I've been the last time you've been here, because you've been on a, a number of times. Uh, it, time just seems to fly by, doesn't it, even in this uh, situation we find ourselves in with this whole COVID thing. Seriously. that that Where does the time go? So I don't know. They, they say the order you are, the faster you get. I'm starting to believe it. <laughs> I agree. So what I'd like to do tonight is uh, it first start out in, in the first segment as kind of a reiteration of, you know, the, the last time you are. It's kind of, you know, just describe to us your positions because uh, they're, they're fascinating just the different perspectives I, you give. I mean, you do give a libertarian slash conservative perspective as well as, you know, there are some religious grounds uh, for your advocacy as well. So definitely want to hear about those. Um, and, of course, about, you know, freedom and choice, which, uh, you know, we're supposed to be about, about here in these United States. So I'd like to start off, you know, going over that and then move into, you know, what you've been up to, what the successes you've had. I know uh, off the air we've talked about one of those, which definitely want to bring up and how COVID, of course, put a, you know, a, a dampener on that. And then later on in the third segment, uh, something new that you're working on, we'll give kind of a little flavor of that. I'm not going to give too much away, uh, but a little flavor of it uh, to kind of whet uh, the audience uh, appetite for, you know, for this new project you're working on as well. So I think that's a, uh, a good way to, to move through it. So first, you know, for the people who are new uh, to your mark here, you know, what, what got you into the advocacy, you know, and what uh, points do you make uh, in your advocacy as a national political uh, advocate? Well, the first thing is I'm not Mormon. I'm not from Utah, and I'm not lascivious, and I don't see women as nothing more than body parts. So I am not the stereotype that is frequently misrepresented when it comes to the issues of polygamy. I am an individual who 
when I graduated, I got two undergraduate degrees. I got two degrees in three years with a 4.0. Uh, one was in business administration, and the other one was in accounting. And I'm the kind of guy who, when I study something, I study very intensely. And that's actually what I did in college is I would actually study it. And other students knew they wanted to take a class with me at the same time I took it because they know that I would study it intensely, share it with everybody else, and help everybody else's grades too. It's just it's how I learn, and it's how I study, and it's how I bring it to other people. You know, I, at one point you – know, go ahead. No, you – go ahead. I was just saying, no, I mean, you, I mean, you've been all over the place. Uh, you've got here, you know, ABC 2020, Newsweek, Gospel, MSNBC. Not that I'm a fan of MSNBC, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, still good clubs as the press. Yeah, the Washington, the Times. I'm not a big fan of those, but I mean, you, yeah, you've definitely been out there, you know, with your message. Well, I appreciate that. the The challenge for me is that I was told as a Christian I'm supposed to believe all the Bible, and the Bible is supposed to be the definer of Christian doctrine, not what any man tells you. And when I was told that, that was their big mistake <laughs> because I studied it intensely the same way I did in college. And as I did, I discovered that there was one profound dichotomy, contradiction that absolutely stands out massively. And that is, is that we're told by man's doctrine that this idea of the doctrine of one man, one woman is supposedly from the Bible. And actually, you don't see that phrase ever referenced. But more importantly, what you actually see is dozens and dozens of men in the Bible having more than one wife. And then you discover it was never called adultery. It was never called fornication. It was never called a sin. And it was, when you understand the difference between the Old Testament of being under the doctrine and covenant of the law and being under the new covenant, the New Testament, the new covenant of not being under the law but saved by grace through faith, you then realize that if a doctrine such as uh, verses such as Exodus 21:10 as well as uh, Deuteronomy uh, 15, uh, that you start to understand well several passages anyway. Bottom line is the Old Testament said that a man could actually have more than one wife, and it was actually regulated under the law. Then you go to the New Testament. If you're under grace and saved by grace through faith, then why would the doctrine of marriage that allowed polygamy under the law suddenly become more legalistically restrictive in the time of grace of the New Testament? And of course it doesn't. And that's when I then did a study of the history and discovered that the anti-polygamy doctrine didn't even exist until the 3rd or 4th century when Christianity transformed from being the religion of the martyrs, the persecuted martyrs, to becoming the political powerhouse of the Catholic institution and then controlling governments. And so it became an issue of power and control that created the one man, one woman doctrine. So the bottom line is, is from a study of the Bible speaking for itself, there's no way it actually could get to a place of condemning polygamy, especially when you have so many heroes in the Bible, from Moses to Abraham to David, uh, being absolute polygamists in the Bible, to even parable in a parable, Jesus Christ in Matthew 25 describing himself as the polygamous bridegroom coming to marry five wise virgins. If that was a sin, if polygamy was a sin, a sinless Lord and Savior Jesus Christ would never create a parable telling Christians to be ready for him by using a doctrine of sin. So clearly polygamy was never made a sin in the New Testament. It was a man-made doctrine. So that's where I then started laying down the arguments from the depths of my studies, and then that 
1994, I started a newspaper uh, called The Standard Bearer, and I started actually uh, presenting local news, but also things called truth tracts, which would provide an explanation of the doctrine of the Bible according of marriage regarding the fact that it never created a sin of polygamy. And so eventually there was this new thing in the mid-90s. It was called the Internet. Suddenly things changed, and the message was able to go worldwide. That created a new movement called Christian polygamy, which was not Mormon, had nothing to do with that. And basically what it was is fellow Christians discover this truth on their own no matter where they are. They study it themselves, but now with the Internet, they were no longer isolated alone, and that we could join together, we could talk with each other and get to know each other. And so that's how a movement was, be- was born. By 2005, I was on uh, Pat Robertson's 700 Club, and even they acknowledged us as evangelical Christians. So for the first time in history, the two words Christian and polygamy were no longer a contradiction in terms. And we had acknowledged that this was actually uh, a valid thing. That's what catapulted me to the national stage, well, actually over the prior years, but once that standard hit in 2005, uh, that, that totally solidified it, that now I could stand on the national stage and not be discredited as Mormon, not be discredited as lascivious, not be discredited by any of the known stereotypes that are falsely ascribed to polygamy, that actually we're talking about a standard of what I will talk about later called love, not force, where we're actually loving women, not forcing on women, certainly not forcing polygamy on women, and actually men growing up and becoming better men uh, and better husbands just in general. So that actually allowed me to say what others couldn't say. Mormons couldn't say what I could say. Uh, Lascivious people couldn't say what I was saying because I could actually say those arguments. And I did so from a position of believing in the politics of limited government. And so I also couldn't be considered, you know, like I was some super liberal or progressive trying to make new things. I was actually trying to get us to the place of limited government. And so through all this, from the very beginning, I've actually proposed the polygamy rights win-win solution for ending the marriage debate. And that is abolish all marriage control for unrelated consenting adults. It's a win-win for conservatives. They get to have limited government. It's a win-win for liberals. They get to have equality for all. And everybody is free. Nobody can force the churches to marry those to whom they won't because at the end of the day, everybody is free to choose and define their own contractual arrangements of unrelated consenting adults. And so if a Christian church does not want to acknowledge the idea of same-sex marriage. It doesn't matter what they religiously believe because politically and legally it doesn't matter when government is not involved anyway. And so what I really discovered is that anti-polygamy was the real slippery slope that led to the invention of same-sex marriage because if government wasn't even involved, then there would have been no pursuit of legalizing or the new construct of a legalized construct of same-sex marriage. So if you don't like same-sex marriage, then in the the polygamy rights win-win solution, it doesn't matter. Adults can choose what they're going to choose to do. Government isn't saying it's for it. Government isn't saying it's against it. It doesn't matter what unrelated consenting adults choose to do. You know, that's the thing, that if you're going to be in favor of big government, you're going to get big government. And when you use big government to first use government to redefine marriage in the first place by excluding polygamy, which they did in the 1800s, that was the first act of redefining marriage by excluding the theological, the, the, the biblical, the anthropological, historical definition of marriage that always did include polygamy to now suddenly use government to say 
marriage no longer includes polygamy, that was the first use of big government to redefine marriage. And so that created the real slippery slope that led to the idea of anyone else trying to use government to redefine it. And so the bottom line is, is the solution for everyone, that everyone can be happy. And it doesn't matter what your religion is. It doesn't matter what your anti-religion is, is that the polygamy rights win-win solution is to abolish all big government marriage control for unrelated consenting adults, that everybody's free, everyone gets to save face, and that's freedom for everybody according to the Constitution the way it's supposed to be. So that's how I, I then became, you know, through the, the early 2000s and mid-2000s, I became the national polygamy advocate, able to say what others weren't able to say, and then doing numerous media, and, well, that's brought us through several things over the last couple decades. So, yes, I've been doing this for a little bit of a while. <laughs> so why do you think um, – because, yeah, this is – this still seems – two things. I'll go to the uh, – I guess the, the government first and then society second. Is uh, Why do you think there are – I mean – there's laws against polygamy. Why do you think they've instilled the, you know, instilled those, installed those, I should say? Well, the whole idea is it's marriage control, and it's about controlling people. The idea of marriage being licensed, defined, and controlled by government should absolutely horrify anyone who has a religious standpoint of marriage in the first place. For example, for Christians, if they believe that the, the issue of marriage is so important, so vital, well, let's think about this. Marriage is, is indeed, and I agree, is a vital doctrine of Christianity, absolutely is. But the reality is, is that not one person in the Bible was ever married by government. Not one. There's not a single piece of evidence. Now, we hear this big story all the time about Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve. As if somehow that means we can't have polygamy. But the reality is Adam and Eve were never married by government. In fact, the whole concept of using government for marriage should terrify and horrify Christians. Because let's think about this for a minute. Wouldn't we be horrified by a big government gospel control or a big government baptism control or a big government Lord's table control? Those are vital doctrines to Christianity, but we would be horrified at the idea of having government define those doctrines, having government license who's allowed to do those doctrines. That would be horrifying. Well, I elevate marriage to that level as well, and I'm saying that we should be horrified for government to be defining, licensing, or controlling such an important doctrine as marriage. And so the, that's the big mistake of having government involved in the first place. And so when you push for big government, you only get more big government. And that's the mistake that we've seen. And, and of course, ultimately, what ended up happening was is we ended up with same-sex marriage being legalized. And the truth is government never should have been involved in the first place. And if people wanted to have same-sex marriage out of their own imaginations, they certainly had the freedom to do so, should have had the freedom to do so. And the idea for that to be against the law was unconstitutional and certainly unbiblical. And the idea for People to have multiple marriages, that's unconstitutional and unbiblical. The point being is the Bible never uses the false god of big government for anything. And indeed, the, the, the most tragic lesson that Christians should always remember is that it was religious leaders who turned to secular government that actually caused and made 
and hammered in the nails that put Christ on the cross. It was religious leaders using their own doctrines, calling for secular government to enforce their doctrines. That is an absolute abomination, and that's what put Christ on the cross for the belief of us Christians. So the bottom line is, is why would you want to turn to the false god of big government for things like marriage? So that's what I've basically been trying to say for the last 25 years for Christians to understand that as Christians, it's a mistake to be wanting government to license, define, and control for the invented doctrine of OMOW, O-M-O-W, one man, one woman, and that the real solution is to get government out of it. And then we never would have had legal same-sex marriage. And But certainly those who want legal same-sex marriage, those who want marriage of same-sex sex in the first place, if there wasn't any license defining or controlling of marriage through government for it, then what unrelated consenting adults choose to do, and if people wanted to make same-sex marriage relationships with each other without government, then that's their freedom to do so, again, because as unrelated consenting adults, everybody would be free because that's what the Constitution actually calls for, not using government for social engineering because when you ask for big government, you get big government. So that, that's, that's what I've been doing. Now, now, on the second part is you know, that society, it still seems even today with I find ironic, I mean, because society, and I, I consider myself probably, you know, I, I, I guess we kind of label ourselves. I like myself, a, you know, a, a social libertarian and a fiscal conservative is, is probably where I, I stand, if, if you have to put labels on things. But one thing I, I, I find interesting is how people today still find the topic of, you know, I mean, you know, the topic of polygamy taboo. I mean, even on the show when I was talking to my, pan, you know, the panel, you know, about having it come on, I can hear like a, a pall of quiet coming over them. Like, you're, you're going to have a, someone who advocates polygamy on the show. No, we, we've had you on before, um, and we've talked about, but even then, you know, the, there was still kind of a, a pall of like, you can have this on the show? <laughs> and it's like, yes, because, you know, I, I think it does it can advance conservatism and you know, as I think you you didn't say it, but and maybe not even alluded to it. But in a sense, religious freedom. So why do you think even today, where you know they're accepting all you know, pansexualism, I mean all these different isms, all these different you know, sexual orientations, all these pronouns, and it seems to be like no one's like hush hush about it. But when you talk about polygamy, people are like. <gasps> You know, they just have that kind of like visceral reaction to it, like, oh, you know, it's like, well, we, if you guys could accept all these, you know, panisms and, and things of that nature, you know, you got, you know, you got, I mean, all the different genders now and all the different, you know, you're, you're, you're pansexual, you're homosexual, you're bisexual, you're heterosexual, you're, uh, I know there's even more of them, you know, um, of, of what they are, just can't think of them right now. But boy, when you start saying stuff about polygamy, it just it it just seems like it's different. Why do you think that is? Well, there are a couple things that I think that apply to it. The first I would suggest is that not that everybody is a Christian, but everyone knows one. And the problem for Christians is that hearing the truth about the Bible and polygamy is a great psychological threat to them. Because for all their life, all the preachers they knew all and liked and trusted, 
their grandmother who never missed a day of church all her life. Everyone they knew all had believed this lie about OMOW, one man, one woman, that polygamy is supposedly a sin. So when they're faced with the truth of what the scriptures absolutely say otherwise, many people are, as rational human beings, they commit what in Orwell's 1984 uh, dystopia talks about they commit an act of insanity in order to maintain their sanity. And that is that in the face of evidence and proof, it's easier psychologically to just acquiesce to what everyone else has always believed all these years. It's easier psychologically and emotionally to do so because to not otherwise acquiesce means to stand up and somehow think you're superior. Now, mind you, I'm not saying it makes you superior, but the problem is, is that many people have a low self-esteem that they think it's impossible that they can know something that all these people they always respected all their life had wrong. They can't believe that they would know what these other people didn't know. And so it becomes an act of insanity to maintain their sanity. And so there's that. Then you've got the people that aren't necessarily Christian but know someone who's Christian, and they know they're still going to hear it if they ever bring up the issue of polygamy with the people they know who are Christians. And so for them, they say, well, they're, they're the authority on what that – so that people will just give that up too. And so it's just people don't have a dog in the fight, if you will, and so they think that it's going to be whatever they know, what they think they know. And that brings us to the issue of being programmed in propaganda. If you ask – 98% of people, probably even 99, 99.99% of people, how many polygamists do they actually know firsthand? Most of them will say they don't know. And they might even – there might be some family they might know, but they don't know they know. They might not know that they are. But the bottom line is, is most people don't even know. And so they're making – a judgment based on a false stereotype, based on information of something they do not know. And by doing so, they're obviously just perpetrating the stereotype. So I would ask every single person ever hearing about the issue to first stop yourself and ask yourself, what do I really know about this? Am I just basing it on the instinct of what I have been told in the past, but I don't really know people? I don't know what it's actually about. Stop yourself. Check your mentality and discover maybe I need to learn more than what I think I know because in this topic, when it comes to the issue of polygamy, maybe I really don't know anything except the heuristics I've been taught. I use the word heuristics because that's one of my absolute favorite words. I'm a, as a public speaker, there are things that I really like, and the concept of heuristics is really – the understanding of how we as human beings think. And that is heuristic, H-E-U-R-I-S-T-I-C, heuristic, are the mental shortcuts by which we know things and then process things from those. So, for example, it is from past experience, we've seen things, we think that's what it is, and then we store that in our mind. And when the word, for example, polygamy, we may have seen some story about some cultist five years ago or ten years ago. And so that's the only exposure someone's ever had to, hear, to polygamy. When they hear it again, all of a sudden, that heuristic 
pulls up that old memory, and they automatically defer and say, oh, that's what polygamy is. I don't like it. They don't even know why. They haven't actually done a deliberative, contemplative thought about it, but they're just responding on heuristics. Conservatives would call that knee-jerk liberalism, but <laughs> it's, it's responding <laughs> on a knee-jerk reaction. You know, and that's, that it's heuristics, and it really that's the challenge is that people are so stuck in heuristics compounded with the fact that what I call the manufactured news corporations. They, they don't report news anymore. They manufacture it, and yeah. manufactured news corporations make money by sensationalism, and so they don't really want to tell the real story of boring lives of polygamy. Instead, they want to only report about polygamy when it's about cults, when it's about criminals, when it's about things like welfare fraud and underage marriage and all that other obnoxious thing that normal, healthy, UCAP – Unrelated, consenting, adult polygamists actually oppose all those crimes, oppose the cultism, and oppose all that. But people don't know that because the media won't tell them that. The media wants to tell the story that makes people go, ooh, ah. And as a consequence, whenever we do hear from the media, and I get requests all the time, they're what I call circus act requests, C-A-R, circus oh. act requests. And they ask just they, – all they want is they want us to give them a family, put their lives in danger, and then when their story's done, they pack up their cameras and they go back on to the next story. The family's left to be paying the price of civil law, criminal law, and other things. And so they're not actually willing to actually tell our story. And so that's the problem is that the combination of the manufactured news outlets and the issue of the threats to our family, we're not able to actually tell our story sufficiently – as much as we've been trying, and, and certainly you know, I've been working hard at this for a couple of decades, and I have managed to do a lot of media uh, for, for our benefits. But the overwhelming in motivation for the manufactured news corporations is to make money by sensationalizing and making polygamy out to be a false stereotype because they make more money because they get more viewers. So they're not actually mostly interested in telling the actual story so that we can help people have new heuristics, new realizations of what polygamy for unrelated consenting adult polygamy, UCAP, are actually about. So those are the challenges of why people respond as they do is because they're responding based on the, the people they, use, they know and respect and can't believe that they would somehow know something all those other people knew because of their lower self-esteem or because of the heuristics of media programming, church indoctrination, or people that, that they know. Everybody automatically thinks the stereotype, and the, the first thing I would plead for every person who wants me to believe that they are a rational, intellectual, intelligent being is to first catch yourself when that heuristic pops up. When you hear the word polygamy – Ask yourself, what do you really know, or are you just responding based on a heuristic? And then, you know, a lot of folks, you know, you mentioned the word earlier, I believe, where, you know, the first thing you mentioned, knee-jerk reaction, uh, would be, oh, well, these, these are just a bunch of guys, misogynists, they're, you know, male-dominant. You know, they would just want to have the like the idea of having multiple wives for obvious reasons. What people would think. Uh, so you know, people have that mindset. What would you tell someone who does have that? You know, that view, incorrect as it is. 
you know, on that. That you no, know, this isn't, you know, just a bunch of men who are misogynist. Women, you know, like, oh well the only person who benefits is the men. You know, we've we've talked about this, you know, other times you've you've been on and how that's that's actually not the case. That actually could be hard for the guy. I mean think about Absolutely. it. Well, I'll, 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 I'll let you go on that one. Go ahead. <laughs> Absolutely. Well what you've pointed out is another heuristic. The the it's it's a a heuristic is a mental shortcut. It's the go-to reaction when you hear a word or a concept. You automatically go to this concept, this position. And so when someone hears polygamy, if their heuristic is based on the false stereotype that it's all about the man benefiting, then they're just doing nothing more than being a robot responding to the heuristic programming of their past. They're not stopping and being deliberative in their thinking, saying, what do I actually know? They're just responding, regurgitating, if you will, past programming of indoctrination of what they've been taught. But they don't know anything because, again, they most likely have never, ever met real UCAP, unrelated consenting adult polygamy. Now, once they can be honest with their intellect that way and recognize that they really don't know what they don't know, (laughs) then what I would bring to their attention is that let's think about this for a minute. Drop the heuristics that… Polygamy has anything to do with the cults. Cults are going to do what the cults are doing. I'm not talking about cults. I'm talking about regular people. Joe Sixpack on the East Coast, somebody on the West Coast, it doesn't matter. I'm talking about regular, normal human beings, straight, secular human beings. And, by, and actually, I don't even, don't even have to worry about the issue of straight. You want to be gay or whatever, that's not even the discussion I'm bringing up. What I'm saying is that for regular, non-cult concepts, I'm talking about regular, secular America. Now, in a regular secular America, no guy is ever going to be able to get away with being the idiot that the false stereotype tries to suggest. Because the reality is in today's world, today's modern American woman, if you would just right now say only the United States. I mean this is a worldwide thing, but outside, when you talk about the United States, normal, everyday, mainstream American women… There is no way that a guy is going to be able to get away with smart, educated, strong women that he's going to be able to be an idiot. There's no way. So the reality is is that to be a polygamist in a modern secular world with modern secular people, even whether you're Christian or not, and I want to be clear. When I talk about Christian polygamy, it is not an issue like it's a matter of this is a new religion or a new denomination. Christian polygamy is nothing more than regular Christians, whether you're from Baptist or Pentecostal or any other doctrinal basis from one side to the other, from extreme law to extreme grace. It's just a regular everyday Christian who also recognizes the Bible never called polygamy a sin. That's all it takes for Christian polygamy under the standard of love, not force, that you would never force polygamy on a wife, and that's a, that's a later discussion. But the bottom line is in a secular world with today's women being educated, smart having power and authority and election, electing voting rights and full authority, property rights, everything. Women have full equality. A man really would be a polygamist with such women. He has got to be caring about those women and listening to those women and nurturing in the way they each want to be cared for and taken care of. And when I say cared for, do not look at that as some paternalistic or patriarchal concept. I'm talking about merely as caring for the woman based on what she needs because it's an intimate relationship between the two. And, you know, it's a I know you, you know me. That's that intimacy of, of 
psychological, emotional, as well as physical and emotional uh, bonding between the relationship. The point I'm getting at is that the stereotype can never succeed because the minute a guy tries to be that false stereotype, he will no longer be a polygamist. Hello, this is 2021. There's no way such women are going to put up, but they would put him in his place faster than you can blink because women are smart. Women are fully capable. And the idea that somehow women need a guy to provide for them, that's the other ridiculous argument we, I will hear used as a false stereotype, that somehow uh, if, if he's going to have all these wives, he's got to be able to provide for them all. Again, that's actually a horrifyingly insulting view of women because that suggests women today, even today, need a sugar daddy, and that a polygamist has to be a sugar daddy. That's absolutely ridiculous. The truth is women are independent and smart and fully capable of making their own decisions. And so, for example, some woman who might want to be a high-career, high-traveling professional woman, and she has to travel several places regularly for her work. Another woman might actually want the choice to be a stay-at-home mom. These two women could come together, make a choice together on a man they've determined is good and is not dominating to the point of ridiculous chest-pounding and all that foolishness, but actually he loves them and cares for them, that they make a choice, and the woman who is the high-career, high-traveling woman, she knows she can go doing that knowing her children are being cared for by a woman who loves them instead of being shipped off to low-paid strangers at daycare. And as well, she can know that her husband is not out philandering because he's also with a woman he loves and loves him. And so she knows her family is operating within her values. She's not worrying about her children being misled by the values of some low-paid stranger at daycare. So the bottom line is, is that these two women for, in this scenario could make a choice, and it works for them. And it absolutely could work for them. And that's not to say that every woman's the same. This story proves they could actually be opposites and yet complementary to each other, helping each other have their own needs and knowing that their husband is a good man and not out philandering. This is how this could be a possibility that works for them. So that's just some of the examples I would say. So when people come out with a heuristic that suggests that it's all about the sex for the man, they're jumping into what I, I would actually say are anti-woman perspectives. They're suggesting women need to need, somehow need a sugar daddy, that women somehow can't be independent, that women somehow can't make a choice that works for their particular needs. The reality is let women choose what their needs are. Let women decide if this is what they want to do. Why do we need a paternalistic patriarchal government declaring that, no, we must have one man, one woman, like Karl Marx, one for each so that each might have one. Yeah, you can't get much more Karl Marx than that <laughs> statement, and that's the doctrine of one man, one woman. Oh, Mao, one for each, so that each might have one. So that's just when it comes to the issues of relationship. I can get into laissez-faire that that's starting to lead into, but that's another discussion. So I think I've, I've addressed your question on the heuristic of the false stereotypes that people think it's all about what the man wants. The bottom line is any guy to be able to pull it off in a world of strong, smart, educated, secular women – has actually got to be a man who's grown up. He's gone from learning uh, third grade math to learning how to do calculus as a PhD. He's grown up to be able to understand how to care and be the man the women need. 
I, I'll end this answer with this story. We had a woman in our organization who she had been married to a vicious abuser. In fact, he was a vicious wife beater. And they had children together, and he used to beat her and beat the, beat the children. And that was your monogamy situation, your one man, one woman. Eventually, she managed to no longer be part of that abuse and was able to break away. Later, she, at church, she met a woman she really enjoyed. They barely became sister-like with each other. And as a consequence, they actually invited her. She, they had children too, and they actually joined, had her join their family as a polygamous arrangement. Suddenly, she was being more loved than she'd ever been loved with her previous monogamous wife beater. And her children were suddenly thriving and having improvement of grades and things of that nature, and they knew that they were being loved. The, the, they knew that the man in the new relationship, the polygamous relationship, was a good man who was caring and giving her. And as she even said, that she gets more love and more care as a polygamous wife than she ever got as the wife of a monogamous abuser. And so this is why it is possible for a man to love a woman more than she may only want, or maybe he can give more. Because as parents, you can love more than one child. As a human being, you can love, and a husband can certainly love more than one wife and not take away from the other. And certainly a good polygamous man can give more love to a polygamous wife than any monogamous wife beater ever does. Yeah, and actually, uh, you know, something a little unprecedented here. I'll get to it later. Um, this, this, you know, some I get messages on chat here. I have people send me messages, uh, you know, on different platforms that I'm on, uh, you know, personal messages, things of that nature. Um, and there, there are actually some tough questions that you will see if you'll, uh, you know, if you're open to answer them. But first, before I get to those, um, is that. You, know, you mentioned about you know the strong woman. What what would you say about the argument that folks would say? Well, what about if you get you know some guy who just preys on weak-willed women? Because I mean, they do exist. I mean, there's weak-willed men out there, just people. Uh, but what would you you know say to those? You said, well, what if you have one who you know, just goes after weak-willed women? I would say that in the end, that's not going to last. It really just is not going to last. Women are not going to take abuse for a long period of time. There is a phrase well, out there. They gang up on him. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly what it would be, is that they would gang up on him. Exactly. Uh, there is a phrase out there that is a lie. And I want to preface this with that anyone who has left abuse or left a cult, my heart always goes out to. And I want to be clear that I am most emphatically empathetic to anyone who has left abuse, left a cult, left violence, that left anything that was manipulation of them. My heart goes out to all. But there's a phrase out there called escaping polygamy. That is a lie. Nobody in the history of the universe, I'll say that again, no one in the history of the universe has ever escaped polygamy. And here's why. They will have escaped abuse, they may have escaped a cult, but they have never escaped polygamy. And again, here's why. The woman I just told you before, the woman who had finally freed of her abusive monogamous husband, you would never, 
ever in the universe say that a woman who left her monogamous husband because he was abusing her, he was committing violence, you would never say that she escaped monogamy. That's ridiculous. You would never say that because it's, tr- it's not right. what it was. She left abuse. She did not escape monogamy. She escaped abuse. And every single time you hear the lie told of the phrase escaping polygamy, it's a lie. It's impossible. It's never happened in the history of the universe. Nobody ever escaped from polygamy. They escaped from abuse. They escaped from a cult. But they never escaped from polygamy. Let's be clear about that. In the same way, you could never escape from monogamy. Yeah, they probably just call it that just to you know put a bad spin on it. Is what it sounds like to me. It, it makes money. Actually, what it, it, it's, it's a profitable enterprise for the anti-polygamists for profit that are out there because publishers believe that they can make money from selling a book. So they will use a phrase like that because it generates the ooh, ah factor, the circus act factor, and it allows the book to make more sales by using the hyperbole that scares people, and it makes money for selling the books selling the media, selling uh, the representation of the falsehood on the news, manufactured news corporations. So that, that's really why it is and why it gets used. But I just want to be very clear, and especially anybody hearing this who has the I heuristic guess, uh, in their mind, they've heard the phrase escape from polygamy. You need to cut that heuristic out of your mind because that's a lie because in the same way no one has ever escaped monogamy, it's impossible to escape from polygamy. You escape abuse. You escape a cult. And our hearts always go out to anyone who has escaped abuse, who has escaped a cult. Yeah, and that's, uh, you know, as I stated earlier, uh, Mark, is that, you know, again, I get, you know, messages here and people say things in the chat. I get messages on, uh, you know, some persons one through my phone. I also get uh, some who are listening from other platforms uh, where they'll send me uh, messages on social media. And I had a couple people who uh, actually asked some questions, which, again, this is something that's almost a little unprecedented, but it is something that, you know, we can uh, – we can, you know, kind of bring up because it's like it's, it's kind of a it, – this topic is it's a personal nature. And one person asked – I mean, are you open to, to ask some of these types of questions or well, – like, I'll give you an example. You don't let me know if that's something you would wanna, you'd want to answer or not. <laughs> so this guy, okay, and I won't even do the, 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 the screen name or whatever, but, um, it's, you know, he says uh, – he asks, he's, I'm interested in bringing up polygamy to my wife. How do I bring that up to her? Before you even contemplate that thought process, I would ask you to ask yourself, why does this matter to you? Because if you're just doing this for your own selfish reason, then what's the benefit or the reason for even doing it? Because marriage is intimacy on a psychological, emotional, physical level. It's I know you, you know me. And if there is something that you just want to bring it up, you first have to do a self-inventory of yourself, your motivations, your reasons. Why does this matter to you? Why do you want to bring this up? Because if this is just about you and what you want, then you're only going to be self-sabotaging yourself in the first place because you're already closing the door before you could even open it. 
The first thing a wife needs to know when it comes to her hearing about the issue of polygamy within the concept or context of her own husband is, does he love me? Does he care for me? And she's looking to know that on an intimate level that you do and that you are in that intimate place of I know you, you know me, and I'm not here to hurt you because to hurt you is to hurt myself. And so if you're not even at that place of intimacy, then there's a lot of growth you've got to get to before you even contemplate that. I like to use the idea of mathematics and the process we do of building upon building. For example, you first learn about numbers. You have to know how to do numbers and count numbers before you can go further in math. Then once you do that, you learn how to add and subtract. Then once you know how to add and subtract, you learn how to multiply and divide. Then you go into from that to pre-algebra to algebra, then geometry, then you put the two together and you end up with trigonometry, and then you go on, on up to calculus. But so many of us, especially because of the marital socialism, one man, one woman, has so dumbed down us as dumbed down males that just as all socialism does, it, it dumbs down to mediocrity. It has disincentivized men to become better husbands and to develop greater husband skills that so many of us men are actually still at the third, fourth, or fifth grade level of still only knowing how to multiply. And then to turn around for those people who only know how to multiply, saying that there ought to be a law to criminalize those who know how to do calculus, that doesn't even make sense. What I'm saying is that you need to learn to grow in your love for your wife first and care for her and go from that, that multiplication to algebra to geometry and get to calculus that she has such a sense of security in that intimacy with you, in that love that you love her and you care for her and that she does matter and that her hurt is your hurt, that she's not even going to be ready to hear from you about this if she's going to look at you and think that this is all about you. If polygamy is all about you, don't even bother. That's what I would say. So grow up first and check your, check your, check your motivations and make sure that you really are about caring for your wife. That's first. That, that matters first. Take some time and just work on that. That needs to be your objective, your goal, is that you grow and you love her. Whether or not you ever get to polygamy or not, you love her first. You get to that higher level of trigonometry and calculus. Get to that level as, in terms of husband skills towards your wife, that you're caring for her, that her security in your love, her security in your intimacy with her is that it's about her that you care about her. And until you can get to that place where even the issue of polygamy she could see from the perspective of being about her, because if you make polygamy about you, you've closed the door. Polygamy is actually, should actually be about her, and I can get to that at a later time, but that's what I would say to the guy who wants to say, how do I bring this up, is before you bring it up, you need to do an inventory of yourself, your motivations, your emotions, and your husband skills. Well, I think there's um, – there could be some of the information advice for the next one they asked, and this one's even – deeper i guess you could say and you know when i when i you know bring out what they ask um and he put like i'm, I'm presuming by the, the the screen name and the the wordage of the question so i'm pr making a presumption here um it says i am a lot I mean, again again i think it's a guy it says 
I'm in love with another woman, and I am married. Uh, I'd like to marry this other woman as well. Any advice? This is the dilemma that many men in what we call forced polygamy find themselves in. I would go one step further. Some forced polygamists actually do this deliberately and then think, well, now I should be able to make my wife want to be polygamous. And we call that forced polygamy. That, that UCAP, Unrelated Consenting Adult Polygamy, has to have the full, uncoerced, genuine assent and consent of the wife that she wants this as well, she, that she wants the polygamous arrangement. And there are reasons why she could want that, but right now in this position where you're at, where you're talking about loving another woman and the wife doesn't even know her, now you're talking about the concept of mistress and all that business. And that's where the idea of forced polygamy is a problem. And in the beginning of this movement, of uh, when Christian polygamy made possible for the larger movement of all UCAP unrelated consenting adult polygamy, for all forms of polygamy, regardless of Christianity or not, that early in, it, early in the beginning of the movement, there were some people that latched on to the Christian polygamy doctrine and instead created an obedience doctrine and created this theory that if God calls me to polygamy, my wife has to obey. Oh, God, help us, please. Yeah, I've heard of that stuff, yeah. Yes, and that was being bought up by what we call foolish men, if you will, that they wanted what they wanted, and it itched their itching ears and gave them permission, if you will, to do whatever they wanted. But the reality is, is that if God really called you, then God is equally capable of calling your wife. And if she's somehow not in that place with you, then it really calls into question whether you were even called by God of this. Because God is bigger than all of us if that's going to be the basis of your belief. If God called you, he's big enough and capable enough to call her as well and have her want to do this. So if that's not happening, you really have to question your own supposed calling. So the problem was in the beginning of our movement, some men started latching onto this and this forced polygamy doctrine and we realized this is going to work against us. And all of a sudden, anti-polygamists tried to use that as an, as an argument against us, and men started doing it and started losing their wives. And I was always against this, absolutely from the very beginning. I said, no, we're about men growing up. This is not about forcing obedience on wives. God forbid. Help us. Seriously, God help us. And so by 1999, because we, we had begun in 1994 when the movement had begun, about five years later in July, it was July 13, 1999, came up with a standard called Love Not Force. And it told the, st the story of Abraham. Abraham was called that he was going to have a son. And that son, he wanted to have, of course. And he was thinking he was too old and his wife, you know, they're in their 90s. And Sarah's not going to be able to have a child. And so they tried to force it by having him have Hagar. And Hagar had the son Ishmael instead. But wait a minute. If Abraham was called, isn't God bigger than this? And so eventually God said, no, Ishmael was not the son I promised you. I promised you a son. I can do this, and I'm going to call it. And eventually Sarah does give birth to Abraham's son Isaac. 
And so the lesson of this that we teach those who want to use this as a Christian paradigm is that let God bring your Isaac, don't force your Ishmael. And that is, is that if God's called you, God will call your wife. In the same way that God called for the birth of Isaac through 90-year-old Sarah, he's capable of calling your wife as well. And so that's created what we call the love not force standard, that you would love your wife to the point that she embraces polygamy on her own and full assent without coercion, without manipulation, but actually wants this then that's when you have legitimate Christian polygamy. And then that became a larger standard for all of us in the same way that the golden rule was originally a Christian doctrine through the do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The principle can apply beyond Christianity to a larger for all of us. And love not standard, the love not for standard is a standard that went beyond Christian polygamy to all forms of unrelated consenting adult polygamy as a standard that if you're going to have polygamy, then you are not going to force it on your wife. Unrelated consenting adult polygamy, whether you're Christian or not, is about the family all choosing this and wanting this of their own free will, without coercion, without manipulation, but all of free choice. And that a husband would love his wife, not force his wife, and never force polygamy on his wife. So the danger that the scenario of the gentleman you just raised uh, brought, brings up is that he's putting himself into the danger of forced polygamy. And that he wants to either force polygamy on his wife. And the consequence of that is he's going to lose his wife. That's just the reality. He just might as well face it now. He's going to lose his wife. Because he, he's going to force it on her and she's going to rightly leave. Because he's an idiot. And that's what we're not standing for. We're saying that we're talking about men to grow up and be better men. Not be idiots. Not force polygamy on their wives. Because we need to love our wives. You know, And especially if you're doing it from a Christian doctrine, the marriage model of of marriage according to Christians is to be as Christ loving the churches. And as he told in Matthew 25, 1 to 13, he's coming to marry five wise virgins. Christ didn't beat and force his wives, uh, force the church. No, he laid down his life for the ones he loved. And that's what we men need to grow up as love our wives that we lay down our lives for them, to care for them and to help them be the best that they want to be by their own terms. That's what we need to do as husbands is to grow up, not hurt our wives. And so, again, it comes back to check your inventory of your motives. Check the inventory of your emotions and skills as a husband towards your wife, and that really needs to be your first priority because what you do to your first wife, the second woman, is seeing, and she will know in the future she's going to be in the same position. And so you've already told her you're not, you're not an honest person. You've already told her you're willing to sacrifice your wife, and you've already told the second woman you'll do it to her too. And so the reality is, is you need to establish a pattern of integrity because whatever you do to your first wife, a second woman is going to see. And she's going to say that's what he'll do to her. He'll do it to me too. So that's what you always need to be aware of, is that you're really under a microscope when you're considering polygamy is that all the women are watching you, and you really have to care about all of them. Yeah, you mentioned um, – yeah, because you, you definitely take it from a, a religious perspective. Not everyone, and frankly, including myself, are, you know, aren't religious folks. But, um, well, we're, we're actually to the top of the hour, so, I mean, definitely uh, maybe at another time you have on the show we can, you know, delve more into that, um, you know, because it's like, sure. well, you know, with someone in, with someone in that – because I, you know, try to help some help people, but, you know, someone in that position, I just wonder if, you know – I guess their next question would be, I don't know, I don't want to speak for anybody, but okay, well, 
how do you how do you make it work? I guess before we get to the other thing is, I mean, how would you make something like that work, or how do you make it work? Um, I mean, I don't know. Again, that's something we can talk about maybe later if we got time. But I did. We're on sure. the next segment, so I want to. Um, okay. I want to bring up you. You know, we mentioned off air that you know you've had had some set uh, some successes. So I definitely want to hear more about that, and then how it, I wouldn't say it was derailed, but how it was overshadowed uh, by, of course, all this COVID, you know, stuff. The 2010s were an interesting decade, and I do want to say that we certainly have run into some challenges. I'm trying to decide if I'm going to go one one way with the story or, one, or the other way. If I go straight to the the issues of legal success, <clears throat> in the 2010s, TLC began running a show called Sister Wives, which was actually still of a Mormon polygamous family. And they I remember in Utah. that. I mean, I didn't watch it a lot, yes. to be honest, but I, I do remember like seeing commercials and yes. stuff. Yes, yes, yes. And... Actually, they've even had their, uh, I don't know how many numbers of seasons, 15, 16 or whatever, but uh, it was the, wow. they even ran a season this last spring. So they've been running for the last uh, 10 years. Wow. And the, I'm trying to think how to put that. Early in the first season or two, because they had gone public, that the a prosecutor in their area wanted to investigate them and create a, a legal threat to them. And that- now, I don't know if that is NSA Bob or we got disconnected. I know he's calling from Skype. Hopefully we hear um, hear more about him uh, or more from him. We're, we're not in the Bard's Logic after dark, so hopefully uh, we'll be able to get him called back in. Uh, I do find it interesting some of the timing when some of our guests here when they get cut off uh, or, or cut off from the show. Uh, so I do find that uh, I always find that interesting how sometimes uh, how sometimes that happens. Um, so hopefully uh, you know for the for the the guys who you know ask those questions, I hope you know the answers were you know fulfilling for you. I hope they gave you a, you know an idea of, of where to go. Uh, with things, you know, maybe get some ideas how to, you know, ponder on it and and, and go from there. I, you know, we're always big proponents here, you know, do your own research. Um, and, of course, we'd like to, you know, maybe hear some more from uh, from Mark. So, again, I find it uh, interesting, the timing of uh, him coming in. But, what you know, again, uh, for those who kind of skip through things, so we are working on getting uh, Josh Mandel on. He is uh, running for the Senate, so we're uh, working on getting him on. And I've got another interesting topic uh, that I was hoping that Mark is going to bring up, and so I'm not going to steal the thunder by by not bringing it, you know, by by bringing it up. But there's also uh, an organization. I went to a meeting this uh, this past weekend, and I'm going to look more into this organization. I got an audio clip that I just have to I have to you know, basically edit just because it's too long and the megabytes is too, <laughs> is too big for me to be able to like upload it as an audio clip so i have to like cut it in half and that takes you know you know technical uh, technological stuff 
So I'll take some time. So I'm hoping to do that next week is to have that uh, broken up. But the meeting uh, was for, called Ohio, the Ohio State Girl Assembly. And basically, you know, they have web, the website. I could get, you know, more information if they would see a flavor of those things. Um, it's, you know, the Ohio State Girl Assembly.org. Okay. And, you know, definitely check it out. You know, I say folks do their own research. But it was definitely some interesting information about uh, the Constitution, which, of course, I always find fascinating um, in history and how, you know, the Ohio State Code and Ohio Constitutions and uh, or just, you know, state constitutions. So it's pretty interesting. Uh, but I'm, I wanna, don't want to give too much away uh, for when we have – I'll have you folks back on so, or, you know, to hear that. I'll get that audio. I'm hoping to do that uh, next week uh, for you. So as we wait for Mark to get back on, I know, again, I don't know if something came through on his Skype. I know some Skype is limited, uh, whereas you only get a certain amount of minutes, I guess. I mean, I, I had Skype once, but, you know, I never really used it where I paid to, to make calls from it. So I don't know if it's like a a prepaid card or or if it's something that if you run out of minutes, it, it disconnects you. Or I really don't know how that works. But hopefully we get him back in. We we had a couple more hours yet that we were going to probably be able to uh, to have him on the show. So we'll uh, again hopefully have him back on. So what we'll do here is we'll go to uh, the website. Uh, and see what the uh, events and things that we're, we have here at the website at Uh We'll see if we, you know, again, wait. We'll interrupt him once he's back on, if he's able to get back on. If not, maybe we'll get some, some audios or just have an abbreviated version, which is sad because, I mean, as I said, I've been waiting for weeks uh, to get Mark uh, back on the show, so hopefully we didn't hit any snags here. But anyway, while you're with me, whether you're listening live or whether you're listening to the uh, podcast uh, here, the recorded version, is it go to the website www.bardslogicpoliticaltalk.com, and let's see what we got here going on in the newsroom, just so we can see what uh, we've got here. Uh, let's see. So get the front page. Of course, you probably heard about Chris Cuomo. Um, you know, the, <clears throat> I'm sorry, not Chris Cuomo. Um, Andrew Cuomo uh, and the AG report about him. Um, let's see. Let's look down here and find one that's going to be interesting for us. So if you're on the, hopefully you're on the site with me at www.bardslogic.com, which you can subscribe to the newsletter. Uh, all you got to do is put your email address. You're not going to get inundated with news. You know, you're not going to get inundated with, you know, emails, I said, from the news, uh, news page. It just comes once a week, you know, telling you what different articles you can find there. Um, and let's see. Let us find one that I know everyone's going to be pretty interested in that, you know, you're not hearing everyone else talk about because, you know, I don't really – like to you know talk about what everybody else is um oh wow here's something you may not have heard i tell you what i think they're really trying to the to, to hurt this country i tell you this, this, now this is going to be this here's hypocrisy 
at its most. Here's the art, uh, the title of the article. Is the title of the article is is Biden administration plans to require all foreign travelers to U.S. be vaccinated against COVID-19. So let's go to the article and with the hypocrisy, as you know, is they're letting all these illegal immigrants come in without being vaccinated. And then they're going to want people who are actually trying to come in to visit or spend their money here instead of us spending our money on illegal immigrants. Uh, and then they can not be vaccinated, but they're going to just keep our open uh, our borders just open. So let's see here. So the Biden administration is planning to require almost all foreign travelers to the United States to receive the COVID vaccine 19, a White House official reported on Wednesday. Says the official who spoke to the Associated Press on the condition of anonymity said the requirement would be part of an administration's easing up on travel restrictions for foreign citizens entering the United States. A timeline has not been determined yet, as working groups within federal agencies are studying how best to resume normal travel. But all foreign travelers, with a few exceptions, will be expected to have received the COVID vaccine, uh, COVID-19 vaccine to enter the country, according to the Associated Press. Currently, travel restrictions are still in place as any residents from outside the United States who visited Brazil, Ireland, the United Kingdom, India, South Africa, China, and the European Schengen area in two weeks prior who traveling to the United States are prevented from entering the AP reported. All air travelers to the United States must prove, must provide proof of negative COVID-19 taken, test taken within prior to three days, regardless of vaccination status to enter the country. So here we've got, where well, they're like, oh, well, you're going to have to show you, you know, got the COVID-19 shot in order to come back into our country. But then the border, the southern border is a wide open for people to, you know, to, for people all over the world. It's not just Mexico. Come in, and they're busting them. They're having them come all over the place, uh, you know, without, without vaccinations, not uh, tests. And, you know, they're busting them throughout the entire country. So we still haven't had uh, our guest on, you know, back on. So uh, what we'll do here is, I know people don't just like to hear me just talk all the time, so I'll find uh, you know nice uh, audio for you guys to uh, listen to uh, that I like. Well, of course, yeah, I try to get it with when you guys like as well, and hopefully we'll be able to uh, get our our guest back on because I mean we did have it slotted for him to be on uh, the entire three hours onto the show, so. Hopefully, we'll be able to get him back on. I don't know exactly, you know, what happened there. It's one of the things I don't like about calling, you know, from calling from, you know, Skype, uh, because I guess those things can happen. Um, I guess if you got a limited. I mean, I, we do have Skype callers. Uh, if you're on Skype and you call in from Skype, um, if you'd like to share what happens there, push the one on your number dial as to, you know, if you call in using Skype, I mean, do you have limited minutes? Again, I don't use it. I mean, do you have limited minutes, or just does it, can it catch out if you lose internet connection, or or how does that work? So if you're one of our Skype callers, which we do have a number of them, and if you don't mind pushing the one on a number dial, then I'd be able to get you. You know, you could just kind of give us, a, you know, how that works. I'm not, I'm not really sure. 
uh, you know how you know how that works here. So, so let's see what we got. I guess you got so many of audio, audio things here that. So, well, there was a an audio clip. It's about twenty minutes. So I don't know if I want to play it uh, the whole time. But let's go ahead and we'll play some more of the uh, Trump rally that was in Cincinnati, Ohio. And if our guest comes back in, you know, we'll we'll cut it short. Uh, and then we'll bring it back in, uh, you know, bring it back in if he's able to call in. But if not, we'll we'll just get from there. That's the kind of the organic nature of uh, podcasts sometimes. But let's go ahead and get, let you hear more of uh, that rally, that live rally from uh, from Trump. When things work out well at a young age, look what happened to all of us, right? Look what happened. But I was watching the so-called debate last night. Now, th- this was a rally in 2019. And I also watched the night before there was long, long television. <laughs> and the Democrats spent more time attacking Barack Obama than they did attacking me, practically. <laughs> and this morning, that's all the fake news was talking about. Now we're doing good. It's great to be back to the state that I love. I love this state. Very special. Very, very special. On the banks of the beautiful Ohio River with the hardworking patriots of the American heartland. Thank you, Ohio. We love you, Ohio. And I asked the officials, can we sneak them up along the aisle? Can they sit on the stairs? But I'll tell you what, this is some crowd, some turnout. We've sold tens of thousands of tickets. And you know what the sale price is? We keep it nice and low. We keep it nice and low. But there never has been a movement like this. This is a movement the likes of which They've never seen before, maybe anywhere, but certainly in this country, they've never seen anything like this before. You came from the mountains and the valleys and the rivers, and you came from, I mean, look, from wherever you came from, there were a lot of them. And they showed up on election day, I'll never forget, a wonderful congressman from Tennessee to have early voting. One of the earliest places, great state Tennessee, and he said, he was in Pennsylvania with me, great state. And he said, you know, sir, I've been doing this for a long time, but I've never seen people like this show up for early voting. People that haven't voted in a long time because they didn't see anybody they wanted to vote for. said, I've never seen this. They have Trump banners and Trump hats and Trump buttons. If the rest of the country is voting like Tennessee is voting, you're going to win by a lot, and we won, and we won by a lot. (laughs) 
is stronger today than ever before. We have the number one economy on earth. No economy is We're rebuilding the awesome might of the United States military and soon it will be stronger, relatively speaking, than at any time in our history. And when we took over, it was depleted. We took over a depleted military. It's not depleted anymore, I can tell you. Our spirit is strong, our stride is back, and our stand is clear. We are finally putting America first. was giving a rather extensive answer to your question. It was kind of a 
almost a, a mini on-the-fly speech, if you will, uh, just you know, running through the history of where we were. We went from the Brown case uh, that went up through the court system and how it had created a – it started first when it, the judge in the case allowed – basically shut down and closed off the purported clause, which says that – no, his decision determined that you can no longer criminalize the use of the purported clause that says that if a man has more than one wife, but he says he has more than one, or if he purports to have more than one, that you can no longer use his free speech to criminalize it. And so he actually shut that off the law. He closed it off the law and made a good decision that was productive for us in the Brown v. Buman case that was from the Sister Wives case. But then it went up to the Tenth Circuit, and the Tenth Circuit had decided against it, and they basically reversed it, not on the merits of the argument, but on a technicality. They rendered the legal standing of the Browns because they had moved out of Utah and because of the diabolical concept of prosecutorial discretion, where the prosecutor had said they will not prosecute the Brown family. Then the Tenth Circuit said, well, if nobody is in danger, there's no controversy here, then the, the case is moot because the Browns have no legal standing being in Nevada when this is supposed to be taking place in Utah. And so it actually reversed it, went up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court declined to even hear it. So on January 2017, they declined it, and that basically reversed it back to the standard of the law before that. The last time I was on your show was around the fall of 2019, and at that time, a Utah state senator was proposing a bill that we weren't really optimistic would really go as far as it went, but we're glad eventually what happened. And that was that the proposal of that bill sought to remove the felony aspect of the polygamy charge to reduce it from felony down to being an infraction, which is essentially a traffic ticket violation, so that it really decriminalized it and moved it down to nothing more than a traffic ticket. We, When I was on your show last, I was not optimistic of it because Utah, Arizona is what we call the Mormon land bubble, where pretty much if you're not part of the mainstream LDS then you're pre or Mormonism of one form or another, you are the one who's in the minority, and that the state legislature is usually kowtowing to the LD, the mainstream LTS. Both the media and the uh, state and House and and senators are usually uh, kowtowing to whatever the LDS Church decrees for them. Uh, this is something we've definitely discovered uh, that that whatever the LDS, for example, whenever you see an article that talks about polygamy and mentions Mormonism or LDS, they always always include a caveat that says that the mainstream LDS has disavowed polygamy and will excommunicate it. The media is afraid to report about polygamy without adding that caveat. The representatives of the state and Senate and House are, are afraid to ever say otherwise. So we were not fully optimistic because of the Mormon man bubble uh, and that. But by January and February, it did pass the House and went to the Senate or went, went vice versa, and they had to make an amendment to it. And so it went back to the Senate. They, they approved that change, and then it finally got passed, and then suddenly – March 2020 hit, 
an April 2020 hit, and the law was supposed to be signed by the governor, and it was, on May 12, 2020. But what happened in March, April, and May of 2020? COVID-1984. Or I, as I, I call it COVID-1984, and I can explain what I mean by that later. But ultimately, everybody knows, COVID-19. And so here we are with a massive victory that finally the criminalization of polygamy in the state of Utah anyway had been reduced to nothing more than a traffic ticket and that it was nothing more than de facto polygamy would not be even be criminalized and that no more could they use the purported clause because that was no longer in the new law that they passed. That should have been a moment when we should have been able to do a victory lap through all the media going from media to media to media, talking about the impact of this massive change in the state of Utah. Because the reason why it was relevant and the reason why it only went down to an infraction and couldn't actually be removed is because in the state of Utah's constitution, in order for them to be ratified, excuse me, to be approved to become a state in the union in the first place, back in the 1800s, they had to actually first add to the state Utah constitution the words, Polygamy is forever prohibited. So they yeah, I remember still you saying, within, saying that last time. Right. So within the Utah State Constitution, they they were able to stay within those confines by still letting it be prohibited, but prohibited by nothing more than an infraction, the equivalent of a parking ticket. This was massive news, and we should have had massive all kinds of media outlets all over us for this. But COVID nineteen eighty four hit, and all the media. 24-7 ever wanted to talk about was COVID-1984 and the, the limitations and the controls they wanted to put on, on people. And then we had the riots in the summer uh, through all that. And then we had the universal mail-in ballot scam. And then we had the election. And then we had the uh, attacks of people breaking into uh, the, the Congress and them calling it an insurrection and all that goes on with that. The media has never given us the freedom or opportunity to have a victory lap on this massive news that impacts us. And so most people listening to your program here and most people anywhere else have no idea, and they're still stuck in their old heuristics, their old mental shortcuts, thinking that it's still against the law. And that it, while it still is in Utah, it's brought down to nothing more than an infraction. And we need to bring that, of course, to the other states because, for example, in my own state of Maine, the purports clause still exists. Let me clarify what the purports clause one more time just in case you don't get what that means. The purports clause is a clause within the bigamy laws of many states, for example, in my own state of Maine. And it says that bigamy is an offense that a person is guilty of bigamy if a married man – marries or purports to marry another knowing he is legally ineligible to do so. The very act of free speech of purporting, so even if he only has de facto polygamy, de facto polygamy, which is basically the first wife has a marriage license, no other women have a marriage license, then he's de facto polygamy, but he's not de jure polygamy, meaning he doesn't have multiple marriage licenses. And so all he's got to do is this. For example, if I, as a happily married man, say to about two or about any other woman in my house, if I use the one word, the one free speech act, and saying the one word, wife, my saying that one word to or about any woman in my house is a crime still today in my state of Maine. 
and it was again in Utah as well. They had struck down that part as well as made it nothing more than the criminality of de facto polygamy and, of course, in the cases of coerced and underage issues, which we support that. Uh, we support the idea of, of uh, the issue of, under, of opposing underage marriage. So we're for that as well as, as you unrelated consenting adult polygamists. But this should have been big news. It was big news. It was massive big news. But we were deprived of being able to tell that story because of COVID-1984. Back to you, Robert. Wow. Well, two things. One is that I'm wondering if now that they're trying to change all the pronouns and get rid of, you know, man, you know, wife and husband and, and just go with uh, life partner or spouse, maybe you could kind of use that new terminology in your favor. <laughs> well, see, that that's the problem here is that one of the challenges we're, we're having is, is that uh, for 15 years we've been saying that uh, polygamy rights is the next civil rights battle. And essentially, uh, the trans rights movement has actually leapfrogged over us, and they've jumped in instead. And what we're yeah. seeing with this, as a, as a consequence of this, what we're seeing is, is that the value of free speech itself is no longer being considered important. And this is a great threat still to us. We've, we've tried to determine and look to some of the reasons why we're having more difficulty than, for example, the trans rights when we're talking about consenting adult choice and all that. And as we look at that, we see, for example, this new mindset against free speech that, you know, this whole new uh, woke mentality, if you will, that wants to criminalize free speech suddenly our position of trying to appeal to people saying, you know, this is a law that actually criminalizes free speech. It says that a polygamist is, gu- is guilty of a crime worthy of a felony charge and sentence for doing nothing more than the free speech act of saying wife. And realizing most people who care about free speech would care about that and say, no, we can't have that. that, that that's not something that we should do. Right. But now suddenly we look around and we see – like in universities where everybody's protesting free speech. The idea of protesting free speech is, is face palming. What's, what's going on with that? That is, it, it's the pursuit of totalitarianism. And so that itself makes it more difficult for us to get our message out because here we are saying and trying to appeal to people's desire for free speech while the totalitarians are out there pushing for more and more opposition of free speech and criminalization of free speech. And so suddenly our argument is not even being heard. And I think that that has been part of the fact that I've always been the kind of person who believes in finding a win-win. And that's why I was the architect from from the 90s of proposing the polygamy rights win-win solution to end the marriage debate. And I've been proposing that and, and saying that and giving that in interviews for the last couple decades. And I've been presenting polygamy to the public since 1994. And the, the win-win solution has always been to abolish all big government marriage control for unrelated consenting adults. That way everybody gets to save face because people aren't going to do something that puts them in a political or unelectable position. 
And so we have to have a way for people to save face. And to save face and to feel they get a win out of it, we proposed the polygamy rights win-win solution to abolish all marriage control for unrelated consenting adults by giving conservatives the win of limited government, which they said they believe in. And they want limited government, and indeed, we're saying let government not define marriage, license define or control marriage for any unrelated consenting adults. So that means no special rights for same-sex marriage, no special rights for UCIP, unrelated consenting adult polygamy, but that also means no special rights, legal license define or control for OMOW, OMAL, no special rights for one man, one woman either, that nobody has special rights, and that there be no no criminalization for what unrelated consenting adults choose to do in contracting their unrelated consenting adult relationships. And so that allows conservatives to have a limited government face-saving win from the polygamy rights win-win solution. But for liberals on the other side, that also gives them a face-saving win-win position of equality for all. Because if government is not involved in defining, licensing, and controlling the contractual arrangements of consenting adults, then it doesn't matter if Two people of the same gender want to have a contractual relationship with each other and call each other married. That doesn't matter because government's not involved either way. So truly it becomes equality for all. No special rights for OMAO, one man, one woman. No special rights for SSM, same-sex marriage. And no special rights for UCAP, UCAP, unrelated consenting adult polygamy. So that's what we've been proposing for the last 25 years. And but what we're seeing is – we are moving more and more towards the totalitarianism and the authoritarian left and the authoritarian right. Everybody wants authoritarianism. Everybody wants more and more government, and more and more government is unfortunately the opposite direction of the win-win solution. We're trying to give everybody the ability to save face, and instead both sides are fighting each other for the lose-lose situation of more and more authoritarianism, whether it's from the left or from the right. It's all more and more imposition of authoritarianism. And so that, that's the challenge that we're having now is that we've proposed a way to make it good for everybody, but now as everybody wants more and more authoritarianism, you know, it, it, it poses a, a challenge for us. And we're definitely determining whether we have to either rethink this or we need to have to move up to a larger level. These, these are the challenges that we're facing. Back to you. Well, that's a good segue to the what I want to bring in the, in the next segment, but we're going to get there. Um, but, but not quite yet. Uh, a couple things. One, I, I find it uh, – one of the things you mentioned is how the uh, – there's, there's two or three things I want to mention here. But one of the things you mentioned is how the, the, the transgender, uh, you know, leapfrog, you know, leapfrog over you guys. And what I find ironic, and, and not that I'm proposing, you know, you know, you know, you know, minors getting married, so don't, don't, don't – the people who listen to try to just critique uh, the show uh, don't take me wrong. But what I find ironic is the same people who are against that, and I, I'm not saying I, I'm pro that, um, but are the same people who are okay with transgenders, uh, teenagers and children changing their gender. You know, it's like, oh, they don't have a problem with that happening, you know, but they want to stop, uh, you know, what you're advocating for. And I wonder, and I wonder why. I mean, I kind of wonder. And I'm not a Christian, and I don't play one on TV or radio either. Uh, but I do see. <laughs> it does seem like that. Yeah, it does seem like. 
they just like to poke the bear. They just like to poke the bear with Christians. It's like it's it's so anti-Christian now. It's un, it's, it's just it's it's it. I don't even want to say the word interesting because I wouldn't. It's not really the way I want to describe it. But I guess fascinating because it just it seems like that you know they just want to do anything to blast Christians anymore. You know, then I'd be considered a pagan amongst Christians. But I, I just don't understand why they like to to poke that bear all the time. I mean you. You might know better than I why, but I I, I just don't understand it. But um, well, go ahead. My thought process on that is that because I mean I, I understand the Christian perspective, I understand the Christian paradigm, and I've been talking to it for in with it for three decades. And that is, I, I one thing I've been saying to Christianity is a line that anybody who's actually studied the Bible will recognize and should be terrified as they hear it. And that is, is that the leaders of Christianity have gone the way of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. That's a phrase that if you look it up, Jeroboam, son of Nebat, you will see was used several times throughout the Chronicles and the Kings, first and second of each that each king went the way of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, went the way of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, to lead God's people into idolatry. And what Christian leaders have done is they have done that very thing, that they have turned to the false god of big socialist government as their savior. The marriage amendment itself, for example, is an example of that idolatry. They've gone the way of Jeroboam, of son of Nebat, that they turn to big government as their false god, as their savior of marriage, the savior of doctrine. But the reality is they should have been more following Psalms 1-1 of not standing in the way of sinners because the more they pushed for authoritarian government to enforce and push down they only taught the ones they were forcing upon how to use that very same government back against them. And that's what we're seeing today. You know, you, you reap the wind, you, you, you sow the wind, you reap the whirlwind. This is what the Christianity is now suffering because that the Christian leaders have gone the way of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, according to the same belief they all are under the Bible, and they, they lead people to, instead of trusting in God, as Christianity is supposed to be, they trust in government. Government has become their new god. And the marriage control amendment was the epitome of that idolatry because you would never have a big government gospel control amendment. You would never have a big government baptism control amendment. You would never have a big government Lord's table amendment. God forbid, why would you want a big government marriage control amendment? By using government to impose their doctrines that they created such as the OMOW, one man, one woman, that never was found in the Bible, and using government to impose and force that upon that, they only enraged the people upon whom they were imposing it. And they taught them how to use the very same tools of that government against them. And so now they are Christianity is reaping the result of sowing that seed of idolatry, of worshiping government. Government is not your God. If you are a Christian, then God is your God, and you should not be using the authoritarianism of big socialist government. And so now that's why there is such a hatred and an animosity that we are seeing. You're right. You're, you are nailing it, describing it correctly, and we are seeing that. And that is, that is the whirlwind of reaping from the sowing of 
turning to big government to enforce and impose their authoritarianism from the other way. And that's what we're seeing today. That, back to you. And, and, and two last things that I want to kind of segue and give a little flavor of uh, a discussion. You know, I watched that, that, that video, that 17-minute video, um, uh, but and we'll, we'll get, a, get a, a touch on that in the, in the next segment. But, uh, I mean, what does the government – I mean, what if the government ha- – what, what problem does the government you think have with polygamy? I mean, wh- how does it benefit the government to basically keep it illegal? Ultimately, marriage control is more about control than it has anything to do with marriage. I would first say that the issue of the marital Marxism, the marital socialism of OMOW, one man, one woman, one for each so that each might have one, is really – it's – if anything, it is a redistribution of the lesser men – to the better women, and that it's actually depriving women of the better men. As an example of what I call laissez-faire marital economics, picture this. You have nine, ten men and ten women, and nine of those men are jerks. You know, they're, they're hyper-extended adolescences, you know, living in their, their parents' basement, playing video games and doing nothing else, no work, nothing. And we're seeing that now going into their 30s even. And that's If nine of those men are jerks, using government to enforce the invention of the OMOW, the OMOW doctrine of one man, one woman, that never came from the Bible anyway, basically takes the choice from women away. It oppresses nine of those women because it says the other nine women who don't get the good man have to either settle for the jerks or go without. But if I... But if what I propose, the polygamy rights win-win solution, and government gets out of it altogether, then what happens? You have laissez-faire, free market marital economics. Because what will happen is now the women, the other nine women, can choose the good man. And then what happens? As always happens, when you have a free market, you reinstate the incentive for excellence. And those other nine jerks suddenly realize, oh my goodness. I better hurry up and grow up. I better hurry up and become a good man that women would want to choose. And then you know what happens? You get better men for the women to choose. And you end up with equilibrium anyway. But instead, what one man, one woman marriage control is doing, it is dumbed down males to now we are in the era of what I call dumbed down males. The era of dumbed down males in which we have marriage phobic males and abandoned single moms. I mean, this is the era, stand-up comic after stand-up comic makes the biggest joke we hear from one comic after another is that men are afraid of marriage. How nuts is that? We have a society where men are afraid of marriage, and yet we're actually going to criminalize men who want marriage, like polygamy? That's wanting marriage. That's wanting it, and we make that a crime? So the result of that is that we have disincentivized and as socialism always does, it disincentivizes men from growing up, and it only brings us back down to mediocrity, and it deprives women of better men to choose. And then when we talk about polygamy, women only see the lesser men and somehow think that's heuristic that, well, then who wants polygamy when the men are already jerks? The idea is a free market will incentivize them to stop being jerks because then women have a choice, and then it would equilibrate, equilibrate anyway. 
But the reason why government wants to control that is, again, is it keeps – it dumbs down men. It, it dumbs us down, deprives women of the better men, and it doesn't actually give an incentive for men to be better. And that, of course, creates more and more nanny dependence upon government. And this is part of the reason why I would say government is involved in wanting to control the masses through marriage control. So again, if, if I was a conservative, hearing this for the first time, I would instantly be horrified at the idea of government marriage control. And certainly I would also say if I was a liberal hearing this for the first time, if you want true equality, stop having marriage control for anybody. Stop imposing that because right now the pendulum may have swung, and now, as you say, there's this great animosity against the Christians. All that's going to happen, that pendulum is going to swing back and forth, and eventually there's going to be more authoritarianism. It's going to come back down upon those who are being the great authoritarians now. It's just going to come back, and you're just teaching more and more people how to use the tools of cruelty that you're now doing towards Christians, that the Christians had done to you, and it's just going to go back and forth. You're only creating more education of how to be more cruel. And so that's why I'm saying that marriage control is not about marriage. It's about control, and I am trying to appeal to the hearts of anyone, whether you're conservative, libertarian, or liberal, is that we've got to get government out of this issue. We've got to free all the people so that we have true limited government and true equality for all under a free limited government according to the U.S. Constitution of the United States of America. Back to you. The one thing that um – yeah, one thing I want to bring up, you, you mentioned earlier, uh, before we get to the uh, the next segment, is now let's hope it don't disconnect you after the, uh, at the top of the hour, because then you wouldn't be able to call back in, because after the top of the hour, we're not, unable to do that. But um, oh. you called it COVID-1984. Before we go to our next segment, um, I certainly would like to, to ask you to elaborate on that and why you call it COVID-1984. COVID-1984, I call it that because of George Orwell's book, 1984. This was a book that was a profound impact upon me in terms of its education of how government uses authority and power and changes words and meanings and imposes upon people authoritarianism and even making people think that that's in their best interest. Double think. You know, it, it's the book that taught us war is peace, that uh, that freedom is slavery. The, this idea, the idea of opposites, this is what we have had since the beginning of the pandemic. And the idea that people have to be imposed upon was seriously a great tyranny. And I, I definitely called it, especially once it moved, it started talking about the masks, then it started talking about the stay-at-home tyranny, in which we created what I call econocide, where you killed, you murdered people's incomes. And you actually forced people to stay home, didn't pay them, and 
anything you have to force and you're not paying people what you're doing to them, that is absolute tyranny, no matter who they are. And I was ta- I worried about the suicides we were going to see as a consequence of this. I worried about the rise in drug overdoses we were going to see as a consequence of this, that we have absolutely devastated people. And in the beginning of COVID-1984, all people were with nothing more than snitches wanting to report that people aren't obeying the dictates of government. In my state of Maine, mm-hmm. we, have, we have a Democratic governor with a Democratic House majority controlling both the houses. Essentially, there are two types of real tyrannies that I call them, a dictatocracy and a, repub- a, a dictatoblic. A dictatocracy is when you have a governor issuing fiats when the legislative branch of the House and Senate don't do anything to stop because it's of the same party, and that's when it's from a Democratic party. A dictate public is when you have a Republican executive, governor or president, and you have both houses controlled by Republican parties, and they don't do anything to stop the dictator or the governor. A governor or a president does not have authority to make law in our Use of Montesquieu's maxim of the three branches of government, the executive branch is only to execute law, not to make law. The, only the legislative branch of the House and Senate, the Congress of the federal or the legislatures of House and Senate in the states are the only ones with authority to make law, and then the judiciary branches to judge the law. But we had, for example, in my state of Maine, we have a dictatocracy in which the governor was able to declare fiats and the House and Senate, they didn't even do their jobs. In fact, the House didn't even come to the House to actually even do any business. They never even met. And we ended up running against the Susan Collins, uh, who's, a, who's herself is an extreme moderate, uh, practically a Democrat herself, running against the Democrat candidate who was the Speaker of the House of the Democrat Party of controlling the house in, in the state of Maine, and I called her Sarah Go Do Nothing because she did nothing <laughs> but let the fiats of – her name was Sarah Gideon, but I called her Sarah Go Do Nothing because she did nothing but allow the house to stay home and let the governor dictate laws and make fiats. And so all of this was in absolute utter violation of the constitution of the state of Maine and the constitution of the federal government that says the federal government will guarantee a Republican government to every state. And we did not have a Republican government. And when I say Republican, I mean small r, republic, according to the constitutional creation of government, which is the three branches of government. That's what they're supposed to guarantee. Not a capital R Republican Party government, but rather a small r, republic, Republican type of government. And that's not what we had. We had governments where governors were declaring fiats without – and they're not authority. They're only supposed to be executing the laws the legislature writes. The legislature was not writing. The governor was making law, and that's tyranny. And so nobody was doing anything to stop about this, and it was killing people's economy and hurting people. And in the state of Maine, for example, the summer is our biggest economy, uh, the summer for the oceans and the tourism of the beaches. And then, of course, we have the winter skiing. Uh, But the summer is our biggest time. And COVID-1984 came into that and shut everything down. We couldn't have anybody coming. Everything was shut down and killed people's economies. And so that's why I call that COVID-1984, is that we were living under the authoritarian governments that were not, according to Montesquieu's maxim, of the three separate branches of government uh, that were happening. And, and, and that's why I call it COVID-1984. It occurs to me that if I'm not able to call back in 
as I now move off that answer, I'm wondering if two or three minutes before midnight, if I shouldn't hang up and call you one more time just to make sure I get a free call to you so that I don't get disconnected afterward. Yeah, if you want to, um, yeah, if you want to make sure you uh, to do that, um, we got about eight minutes, so I'll I'll give okay. you a, a warning shot across the bow uh, to do so that. So I'll hang up and, and I'll hang so, up and call you again. Okay, sounds good. Yeah, we got eight minutes. When we you got tell Kelly me. here. Yeah, I'm 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 looking at the at the ticker. I'll let you know when there's like four minutes. Um, good. So let's go ahead and uh, we'll have Kelly here. Kelly's got. Uh, Thank you very much, Kelly, for coming to the show. How are you tonight? Do you hear me, Kelly? Maybe he's got there. some technical yeah, difficulties. There we go. There, there we go. go. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Yeah, sorry, a little a little slow getting here. I had some things to deal with today. But uh, anyway, yeah, this is interesting. Um, I'm going to tell a story and then uh, throw, uh, throw some things out. So I was reading somewhere online about this uh, Japanese guy, and tw- they were twin sisters. And they, the three of them grew up together, kind of, you know, neighborhood. And uh, then they, <clears throat> in their early 20s, he, well, he fell in love with both of them, and they were both already in love with him. And he couldn't decide which one to marry of the twin sisters. And so they sat down, they had a talk, and he married them both. And everybody's all happy, which is, you know, if you have those type of expectations, I mean, the the twin sisters were best friends. and So it didn't have to be either or. They worked it out. Okay. So I don't know how that marriage is, marriage is, marriage, whatever you call it. Or was it China? I can't remember. But it was... uh, definitely an Asian country and I'm like well that's interesting so um, I wanted to but I also wanted to discuss a little bit more about this abolishing polygamy laws but I, what, what's, what's your uh, what's your guest thought on that Japanese couple or triad <laughs> I think I'm familiar with the story you might be referencing and I believe they are from New Zealand or Australia, and they are actually on a TV show on TLC. I think it's called Extreme Sisters, and they have done everything together from plastic surgery and other things, and they're just making a name for themselves this way as well. We remember hearing about them about two or three years ago, and it really came across to us as uh, something that was being nothing more than publicity hype for trying to make a name for themselves, not something that we consider serious as a serious representation of us, um, that, you know, the, the, ex, the extreme extent to uh, their plastic surgery and to all this, that this was just another silliness. And so it was a, uh, something that we've never really taken too seriously because we believe it's just more for media hype. Uh, that they're just trying to get attention for themselves, you know, because it's different and that's all they're trying to do. Uh, you know, the we have generally stood away from the concept of recommending people marrying sisters. Uh, anyway, uh, there is a 
you know, for those, there is a verse in the Old Testament that does talk about not marrying sisters. Um, as the, but that doesn't mean you can't have polygamy. It just means not marrying sisters. Um, and some will then say, well, that means you're not to marry sisters to vex them. So as long as you don't vex her, then you can marry sisters. That's a debate that some have uh, that try to take that. But at the end of the day, I that particular story, while I think the women themselves are of Asian descent, I do believe they live in Australia or New Zealand, one of those uh, down-under countries, as it were, uh, for that, and that. That's my perspective. Okay. Are you, are you uh, yeah, I'm, I'm actually a and real libertarian. Quick, uh, real, 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 quick program, real quick programming note. We're at the four-minute mark, Mark. <laughs> Ah, very good. So okay, well, I'll tell you what. Yeah, so if you want to hang up and then call in real quick before the three minutes and 30 seconds runs out uh, before you can get called back in. I'll hang up right now and call you right back. All right, sounds good. All right, I'm hanging up now. Okay, we'll see you in it shortly. And, and Kelly, yeah, we're going to be uh, – I'll get you that audio clip I was telling you about, um, you know – because I want to get that to you. Uh, did you get a chance to maybe look at that website from that that, that I was showing you about the uh, the jural assemblies? Are you familiar yeah, with those? Yeah. State um, jural assemblies. Well, it's a new movement. Um, it's one of the leaders in yeah, FBI plans. Um, that's because um, I yeah I think I've heard about it. another place another one out of Texas. That'll take a little while to discuss actually. And uh, but I wanted to go back to the polygamy discussion, and uh, when the guy comes back on, his name's Mark, I guess. Yes, Mark Hankel, and he is back on. Thank you very much. Uh, welcome back, Mark. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, that was a good idea for us to do, I believe. Well, yeah, okay. Well, I'm glad you're back on because you know it's nice to have discussion. You know, uh, we can share ideas, and and hopefully we can be respectful. The uh, so, are you, Mark, are you a libertarian? I have a line I say, and that is that liberals are liars, conservatives are liberals, and libertarians are lip servers. And that I am disappointed with all of them. That I have identified myself over time as a constitutionalist conservative. Some would call me a pro-life libertarian. But I have reached the realization that as corporatism has hijacked capitalism, that the parties are really corpenocrats, corpublicans, and corporatarians, and that they value the, the effective government of corporations as more important than the liberty of individuals. And so I actually believe in individuals. I believe that liberty is for individuals, not corporations. Uh, and actually I refer them, to them as big government-born corporations because corporations only exist because government says they exist. It's a fiat. A fiat declares a corporation's existence. And indeed, government itself is a corporation. So it's just corporation, mama corporation with baby corporations, mama government with her baby governments. And that I am an absolute capitalist but I do believe that liberty is for individuals, not big government-born corporations, that capitalism is for individuals, not big government-born corporations, and that to say that you are against big government but for big government-born corporations is an utter contradiction um, because being for big government-born corporations is being for big government, that corporatism has hijacked capitalism. Mark. 
Have so you that's read my Bastiat? Uh, I'm sorry? Law? The Law by but, Bastiat. Bastiat, B-A-S-T-I-A-T? Yeah, Bastiat, The Law. It's an excellent discussion. Oh, my gosh, you'd love that. In I it, would. He well, discusses, yeah, he discussed, because I don't like the corporate control over America either, and um, he discusses in Europe how the corporations were bending government for their profit. But in, this is written in the mid-1800s, yeah. and he said, but America is not like this. And one of his statements was, the state is that great fictitious entity by which everyone seeks to live at the expense of everyone else. So you, the boss, you have the law. You would love that. I also am a constitution scholar. I've been accused of that many times. And uh, I'm also a Christian, but I want to get back to the polygamy thing. In the Old Testament… You know, King David had a bunch of wives and concubines, and so did Solomon. Well, how did this happen? And what happened was men in that culture, basically, unless you were a virgin, uh, you couldn't. It's it's really hard to get remarried. It's very hard in that culture, and people were marrying young, say fourteen, fifteen, sixteen. But how did it? How is it King David and Solomon had so many wives? Well, it's pretty simple. Um, men would die in battle, and um, so a single guy wouldn't really necessarily want her because she's, you know, her husband died in battle. She's not a virgin anymore, and so that's that's how kings would, you know, I tell you what, why don't you marry me or be my concubine? Because you lost your husband. Okay. And in some ways, that would help her because if she, say, it's kind of like the sexual threshold. Once you once you cross the sexual threshold, you, you want sex again and again. That's just kind of how we're made. Natural God-created desires we have. And what can happen here if a woman's not married or not a concubine and provided for, she could end up. Um, having her sensual desires overtake her, as Paul talked about in First Timothy five, and where he said, "I advise widows to remarry." So she has her sensual desires, biological desires, overtake her, and she's sleeping around. Then she has a kid out of wedlock. She's certainly not wanted. Then she could have been become a prostitute, and it just gets downwardly spiraling, worse and worse and worse for her. So I think that's why um, kings would have multiple wives, because their husbands died in battle and the culture didn't frown big time on remarriage. So with that, with that said, there's some other interesting things from our history. The colonial era, I've been reading a well, book can, called can, uh, can I ask you something? Can I address one issue at a time rather than a, a, a overload and then I can't answer them all? <laughs> I think that's pretty fair. Yeah, yeah. Okay, thank you. Uh, I think you raised a very good point, and I appreciate you doing that. I would say that that's overthinking it, and that this is my response or my reaction as I as I hear this is that it is over. We're looking for a reason by overthinking it, and that I don't think that anything suggests that there was a 
deliberative process of saying this is why I'm willing to have more than one wife. I think it just happened because it was never a sin to begin with. They never thought of it as a sin. They never perceived it as a sin. It was never called a sin. It was even regulated under Exodus 21.10 and certainly uh, uh, Deuteronomy 21.15. And so because of this, I would say that they just didn't think about it at all. Consider you mentioned David. Here David is. He goes from being nothing more than a shepherd boy, and then he gets anointed by the prophet Samuel. And what we see through the story of David is a growth of both growth of his family and political power, and that he goes first from getting a couple hundred men, then 600 men, then he gets two wives, then they get attacked, and David says, what should I do? And says, go back and you shall recover your wives. He recovers his wives back. Uh, he also uh, – I should say within this, he was also married to the princess and that uh, she was taken from him and given away to Feltiel. Uh, but so – but according to Omaus today, he was never allowed to marry anybody else. He was only supposed to remain to married to the one woman who was taken away from him by King Saul. So, but God actually returns those two wives to him, and then he goes through all the passes. He goes – eventually God gives him the town of Ziklag. So now here he's got the town of Ziklag and a couple wives. He then becomes uh, the king of Judah, the two tribes of Judah, and that – he then gets uh, more, four more wives. And so here he is, even before Bathsheba, he has six wives and several sons born of those wives, and then finally has his original wife brought back to him as well. Uh, but because he, when he becomes the uh, king of Israel, and so at this point, he becomes the king of Israel. God is with him every step of the way. If God was against polygamy, he would have stopped David right from the beginning for, with wife number two. And so that never would have happened. So when the issue of Bathsheba comes up, the seventh, uh, or the eighth rather, that he's already got seven known named wives. And then the issue of his lustfulness with Bathsheba, and he has Uriah the Hittite killed on the front line. When the prophet Nathan calls him out on 2 Samuel 12.8, he does not call out his polygamy. He calls out the fact that he took this man's one wife and had the man killed. And that's what his sin was, and that's why David repented. He was never repenting of polygamy, and if God is speaking through the mouth of Nathan in 2 Samuel 12, 8, he's, he's not condemning polygamy because he would have stopped all the polygamy. He was condemning him taking one man's wife and having the man killed by sending him back to the front line of the army deliberately to have him killed there. So the point is, is that God himself took responsibility and said in 2 Samuel 12, 8, I gave you all your wives, and if you had wanted more, I'd have given Given you more. That's what God said Himself in Second Samuel twelve eight to David. So my response and reaction to the idea that there's a rationale we have to try to come up with for why the men were doing, I think that's just overthinking. I don't think they thought about it at all because it was never a sin. They never thought about it as a sin. They never thought of a reason why they needed to contemplate justifying doing it. They just did it. Can I marry your wife? What's up? Okay, that was random. Sure. Are you making? Are you making? I'm sorry. Sure, it was random. I am not saying anybody can marry my wife. Nobody can marry my wife. Any wife in my family? No, that's not that. I'm saying sure, that's random. Let's be very clear. (laughs) I was agreeing with Robert. No, I was saying Kelly. That was random. That just came out of nowhere, Kelly. (laughs) All right. Anyway, she may not want me anyway. But but anyway, I'm just going to. All right, 
do you have more than one wife? Because, as I had said before about the issue of purported clause in the state of Maine's law, and because of the publicity of my, having my name out there, I'm not allowed to answer that question in order to protect and save my family. Okay. Well, no, that's fine. So let's go back to uh, the second wife, Abigail of King David. Her husband died, which fits my model that I described. Okay. And then… Yes, King David got married again, and then we look in the Old Testament that uh, adultery is a death sentence, so is murder. So King David had hanging over his head a double death sentence. Well, now, you have to did. stop there. You have to stop there because adultery was not written in the English definition of adultery. It was the Hebrew word was naaf, and the Hebrew word in naaf actually says woman who breaks wedlock. So when a man marries a woman who's not another man's wife, no woman is breaking a wedlock, therefore there is no adultery. If David had committed adultery, God would have stopped him with the second woman. He wouldn't have stopped him before the third woman. He would have stopped him before the fourth, fifth, sixth. He would not have given him more and more wives, more children, and given him the town of Ziklag, then given him the kingdom of Judah, and then given him the kingdom of all 12 tribes of Israel. God would have stopped him long before then if this was adultery as a knife over his head. Adultery, according to Exodus 20, verse 14, thou shalt not commit adultery, means thou shalt not have a woman break her wedlock. And again, if a woman is not married to another man, then he's, no woman is breaking a wedlock, therefore no adultery is occurring. Now, absolutely, in today's modern society, that seems very inegalitarian to us. But if we're going to use doctrine according to the scripture that was, it was written in the original language, it was actually written by God himself. Hey, we're originalists on the Constitution. We've got to be originalists on the text of the Bible. And so if we're originalists on the text of the Bible, the text only meant woman who breaks wedlock, and that's why David was never guilty of adultery. Because you know it says all adulterers have their part in the lake with burnous with fire and brimstone, and certainly David isn't going to be there. And it even says, uh, I think in Luke says that uh, that uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will be seen in the kingdom of heaven. And Abraham had three wives. Israel, the twelve tribes of Israel, were born of four wives. So we have to be careful that we not impose a modern English translation. Definition of adultery onto the originalism of the text Naaf in the Hebrew text of the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. Well, let me ask you a question. Uh, the Apostle Paul gave out instructions for elders and deacons, and elders must be the husband of but one wife. So, if, well, I, I, if, that, if, I, that's if, a great passage. Two wives, if two wives is a, is a sin, is not a sin. As two wives is not a sin, then why did Paul write the husband of but one wife? That's a brilliant question. I'm glad you asked it. It's another example of a mistranslation. The word for one in one wife of those first one wife verses of 1 Timothy 3, 2, 12, and Titus 1, 6, they all basically say that a bishop, elder, or deacon – doesn't say everybody – bishop, elder, or deacon must be the husband of one wife. But the word one in that verse is actually Mia wife. It is not heis. Mia is first as opposed to heis, the numeral one. And this is relevant just as, for example, the word Mia of the Mia day of the week when the women found Jesus Christ on the first day of the week that he was missing. He was resurrected on the Mia day of the week, the first day of the week, with the three women find, uh, finding that he was, the, he was not in the tomb anymore on the Mia day of the week. So what that is not saying is 
the husband of one wife, it is actually saying when you go to the original Greek, again, back to originalism, that a bishop, elder, or deacon must be the wife of their first wife. Boom. Now suddenly you have an anti-divorce doctrine coming into play, and that's absolutely scriptural, as Jesus himself said in Matthew 19, that save only for the cause of uncleanness, that no one shall put a wife uh, and have, not have divorce. So the bottom line is, is that, that those three verses, the Mia wife verses, the one wife verses of 1 Timothy 3.2, 3.12, and Titus 1.6 are actually only applying to bishops, elders, and deacons, not everyone else, and they are saying they must be the husband of their first wife, meaning they've not divorced. So what you're saying is that as long as they are committed to their first wife, did not divorce their first wife, they can become an elder and a deacon and have two or three or ten wives? The idea of can have is really up to the quantity of what the women would actually be marrying him. Uh, it, it, you know, going up to saying ten sounds extreme and exciting and, and ridiculous, but you know, it may be two, it may be three, or whatever it is. It doesn't, they don't even have a thought process about whether there's a number or not. It just is what it is. What it means is he must not have divorced, and that's the only thing that matters. You know, it reminds me of a song that we used to play on Sesame Street. One of these things is not like the other. One of these things just does not belong. And what they would do is they would show a grid of four items, and one of those items didn't belong in that. And the idea of one wife does not belong in the list of items listed of what a bishop, elder, or deacon uh, must not do. But when you put it as first wife, now suddenly first wife does match with all the others because it's saying he must not divorce. So that's the point. It has nothing to do with polygamy. It has to do with divorce. So let me see if I got this right. There's a little, there's a little feedback when you're, when you're speaking there, uh, Mark. Um, but make sure okay. I got this correct is that basically he could – I mean – you know, as a synopsis, I guess, basically he can have more than one wife. He just can't be divorced. Correct. According to those doctrines. That's like, that's like, that, that's like a, yeah, that's just the, the simple synopsis of it. So, yeah, yes. so he, he just can't be, you know, if he's divorced, I guess that meant uh, that once he's divorced, he, he cannot remarry. Is that correct? No, it just means he can't be a bishop, elder, or deacon. Oh, okay, gotcha. So Bishop, okay, they can't be divorced, but okay, I got you. Because they need to be, they need to be the role models. Hello. No, I'm no. here. Hello. Okay, good. No, good. I'm, I'm here. I hear you. <laughs> good, good, good. Yeah, we didn't want that hanging up like last time. Um, no, no, no. Well, there's only about uh, you know 45 minutes to about 40 minutes before I have to start shutting things down. Um, one thing that what my you know would like to do uh, just a, you know segue to give a little flavor of uh, is a discussion we were talking about. I mean, did you want to touch on any of that uh, with that 17 minute video that you you shared with me? Sure, I'd be happy to. As I had well, mentioned Robert, earlier, Robert, there are some challenges. Yeah, I'm, I'm here pulling out. The J.B. Phillips, which was translated directly from the Greek. And we're going to have to see what it says. So it's in Timothy, where Paul's instructing about uh, elders. Well, what verse did you say it was? First Timothy 3.2, 3.12, and Titus 1.6. Let's be clear here. The issue of dealing with 
people that are going to give commentary is not an issue, and I'm not, I'm not here to debate what other people are going to decree. I'm saying you have to go take out Strong's Exhaustive Concordance of the Bible, which will tell you what the actual Greek word was in those three verses, the husband of one wife verses of bishops, elders, and deacons. And you will see it every time. It was not the numeral one, it was or heis, it was the adjective first, mia, mia wife. He must be the husband of mia wife, which means his first wife. So I, I'm not going to go into a debate about commentary from other people because that teaches us nothing. What we need to do is what does the actual language say? It's like the same reason for when it comes to uh, gun control. I'm not going to listen to the commentary of people trying to say something else about the Second Amendment. I'm going to read the Second Amendment myself in the language it was actually written, and as an originalist, I'm going to believe what it actually said by itself. I'm not, I don't care about arguing with people's commentary trying to say it means something else it doesn't. When you look to Strong's, you will find that the word is Mia wife as opposed to heis. And when they want to say one, they would say heis. They would not say Mia. When they wanted to say first, they would say Mia. So I see it actually given the fact that, for example, the King James Version was given to us in the 1600s, and that was itself more than a century after Catholicism had taken over Christianity and had invented the one man, one woman doctrine. Everybody was already culturally indoctrinated to think that it had to be one wife because they had already been taught that by the, the mind control reinterpretation to make sure that the doctrine would match what the Catholic religion had decreed for the last millennia. So that's really what I want to get clear about that, that, about that. Go get yourself well, a strong. I, I guess I'll have to look at Strong's then. And uh, yeah. this is for Robert yeah. and other that might want to listen J.B. Phillips, chapter 3, verse 2, for the office of a bishop, a man must be of a blameless reputation. He must be married to one wife only. King James, very similar, so one wife. And so then the other question I have is, uh, what about the uh, natural number of men to women? I think it's like 49.8% women. 50.1% men. I mean, we're pretty much close to a 50-50 uh, as far as male-female population. How do you explain that? Well, first of all, back to the one-wife issue, all that matters is the Greek of the Mia wife, and you can get that through Strong's. You don't need to, whatever anybody else says uh, about that. The English Bible was not given us to us in English. And so using English language is irrelevant. We need to get back to the originalism, just like we do with the Constitution. As for uh, the other part that you just mentioned, that um, why, don't, why don't I give you a chance to re reword your second question again? Okay, naturally, biologically, uh, women to men in percentage. I believe it's like 49.1 women and 50.1 men, something like that. So how, so how do, do I answer that? Yeah, because if God intended one man, one woman, uh, then why is it not, say, 30% men, 70% women? And, you know, a man can have a bunch of wives. It's right well, around. Well, I, the natural well, is around 50-50. So how, how does that work out? Well, well, I think that, first of all, we need to be careful, no matter who we are, that we're not trying to uh, self-define anything that is what God intended. I think God himself intends it's not for us to define or intend our intentions into his intention. <laughs> that 
I would also say that what you're pointing out is, necess- is regardless of what the averaging is, the real issue is not so much about any ratio of men to women, but rather the ratio of men who want to marry women to the ratio of women who want to marry men. That's a whole other different number because we're in this era of dumbed-down males where men are phobic of marriage-phobic and the era of marriage-phobic males and abandoned single moms. So we're in a society where it's okay for men to go plant seed after seed, leaving abandoned single mom after abandoned single mom, but suddenly we're going to make it a criminal idea or a bad or immoral imagination about some man who actually wants to marry them. The the issue – and then on top of that, you add same-sex marriage. Okay, that completely changes numbers issues altogether. And it's actually, the, the, as I've understood it, the ratios of more uh, men choosing same-sex relationships than the number of women choosing same-sex relationships, then you, you've taken even more men who want to marry women out of the equation. So the issue is not so much about men to women, but actually men who want to marry women to the ratio of women who want to marry men. And what you have with marital socialism is that you have disincentivized the pursuit of excellence for the women to choose. In most species, and including humans, is that especially in a society of freedom, that it's the woman who chooses the men. Most usually that's the case. They choose us. So that's why we end up with the testosterone and little boy peeing contest. We're trying to compete for the woman. So at the end of the day, the idea that there's somehow this misimbalance is nothing more than an, imba- an imagination that is not proven in reality. And then on top of that, and beside that, and on top of that, is the, the reality that if you allow the freedom of women to choose the good man, and in my analogy from before of 10 men and 10 women and nine of those men are jerks, if you allow the freedom for the nine women to also be able to marry the good man if they choose – then you have incentivized those jerks to grow up, become better men, and then what does that do? Give better choices for the women to choose, and then it all equilibrates anyway, so you still end up with your natural balance. The idea of a zero-sum game is the mentality of scarcity that suggests that someone wins, someone has to lose. That's just like what socialists do with economics, that in order for somebody to make money, somebody has to lose money. That's simply not true. Everybody can make money in a win-win situation. So ultimately, it equilibrates. It is the marital socialism of using big socialist government as a false god to enforce the invented one-man-one-woman doctrine that does not exist anywhere in the Bible to enforce one-man-one-woman that has disincentivized men and given us this era of dumbed-down males, of marriage-phobic males, and abandoned single moms. And so regardless of what relationship of a ratio of men to women, what really matters is the ratio of men who want to marry women to the ratio of – to the number of women who want to marry men. Well, I want to throw out something that can <clears throat> heal a lot of marriages and cause young men to grow up, Okay. Real quick, because we, we all run out of time. There is something I wanted him and I, uh, you know, to touch on tonight because we're going to have it actually another show focused fully on this next topic. So I want to get a little flavor. Uh, if we get, we may have to come back like, to that. I just want to give a little. Two minutes. About two I just want to minutes, give Robert, a little flavor of it. Take about two minutes. What's that, Kelly? It's only take about two minutes. I'll try to make it a minute. What? How about that? Okay. All right. Well, real, real quick, 
I do. I, I, I want to get to it, but okay. Well, Titus two um, is where an older married couple helps a younger married couple and helps them grow up. It's called discipleship in marriage. In my of Matthew eighteen, where everybody's getting together. She's making mistakes. He's making mistakes. The younger couple, the older married couple, it can help them. And this is, takes out a lot of fear of men who want to commit. Secondly, if women would stop sleeping around, they're going to cause their man to commit to marriage. The Bible is also pretty clear about not sleeping around. I was a virgin on my wedding day when I was 30. That's the first wife. Okay. And during that growth period when we're dating, I grew leaps and bounds and matured and was making myself better for her, okay? So if men and women stop sleeping around and they're dating two, three years, guess what? They're growing up mega fast. The homeless I work with, single men, they're just floating. The married couples I've seen, other couples, men and women, they got on their feet so fast because they're, they're living for each other. So that, that's the answer is not – I don't believe the answer is, is multiple men or multiple women for whoever. It's called growing up and follow what the Bible says. Don't sleep around until you – don't have sex until you get married. It's that simple. It causes the man well, to grow up. Well, I'm going to – well, I'll tell you what. Well, hold, hold on. and never going to move. Okay, I'm going to chime in, which you know I rarely do. Um, because we are running out of time, and I got my own, you know, my own ideas on that. But I, I tell you what, I don't, you know, I, I don't have, you know, I, I can find statistics, but I don't have them off the, you know, off a sheet here. And then I definitely want to get this thing over. What um, I want us to introduce, I want Mark to introduce, is I tell I know many of I know a many a couple, Kelly. Where who they waited until they were married before they conjugated the, the the relationship, whatever you call it, and it actually turned out terrible for them because what they found is that now they just married someone who is not compatible with them, and and let's be honest, let's 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 be honest here because we are creatures. Sex is a very important part of a relationship. And if you wait until you get married and you find out that that person isn't compatible, well, you're in my, again, I'll see if there's statistics, but I think you're setting yourself up for trouble because I wonder how many, I wonder how many, because they say there's the two things that, now this statistic we've all heard, the two things that people fight about the most in a marriage is money and sex. And if you're find out, you know, after you're married, that you're not sexually compatible, then you're just asking, you're just setting yourself up. I think you're setting yourself up for failure. I mean, that, that's just my opinion. We'll see what, what, if there's any statistics or anything out there, because that's my take on it. Uh, I, I wouldn't recommend, I mean, frankly, I mean, and again, it's probably just because I'm not a religious person, but I, I don't recommend that for anyone. I just think you're setting yourself up for, I think you're setting yourself up for failure. Um, but that, that's the discussion for <laughs> A full discussion for another another time, uh, but I do want to um, simply briefly, uh, you know, again, I want to introduce, uh, and this is not, you know, it's, it's not uh, completely off topic because it is relevant, uh, but I want you to bring the, some of that up, Mark, about, you know, about, you know, the, the, I don't want to bring up the term, I don't want to steal one of your thunder, so let's uh, I'll go ahead and let you introduce that, and again, I want to do more 
uh, spend more time on it, you know, on another episode. Go ahead, uh, Mark. Thank you for that. I appreciate that. I, I appreciated the conversation with Kelly. Kelly, thank you very much for uh, bringing your input to the conversation, bringing your your kindness. You definitely had a general softness and softness in a positive way. I don't mean in any negative way. I really appreciated you had a kind heart and kind spirit in the way you spoke with me, and I I really do appreciate that uh, very much. I would also agree that uh, to the extent of what. Robert was just saying about that. I think that the challenge for that is that it it is a requirement for using government to impose that is the only way to make that happen. That that would be something that would be something I could not support. I think, and as a segue to what Robert wants me to talk about, and I'm happy to talk about that. As a segue to that, it comes from the lesson that Christians have self-sabotaged ourselves in using the idolatry of false government to impose on other people and that we have used it in a, as a weapon because it's actually our idolatry, that government is our false god and we use government to impose what we want to make the world a better place. And the truth is that there's not one single example in the Bible anywhere of God ever needing the false god of big government to impose or enforce any of his doctrines. Government is not something that we see God needing. And so I think God himself is capable of doing that which he will, and that it's not for us to try to devise or invent or concoct his will or his intent of what he actually meant or try to overthink it. That I think that the, the thing when it comes to government that Psalm 1-1 is probably our best standard, and that is to not stand in the way of sinners. Because when we do that, when you know, it's, it's one thing to not necessarily support something. And we've lost a principle in our society that says that so suddenly if I – it should be possible to not support something without saying I have to oppose you. Or the other way around, to oppose something to not, to not necessarily mean that I have to support you. And that the, the problem with that is, is that it creates too much of an expectation and really ultimately leads to force. I had mentioned earlier about uh, – authoritarianism from the right and authoritarian from the left, and that that's really where we are. If I ask you what things you love to do, and I'm speaking to anybody now. I'm certainly not just speaking to Kelly. I'm speaking to Robert, to everybody listening to this. And as if I ask you what do you love to do, and if I ask you what do you love to have, you absolutely have some things that you love to do and some things that you love to have. And certainly if I was to make a law or if someone was to make a law to make it against the law for you to do the things you love to do or have the things you love to have, it would be natural and the right and proper normal natural human response of you that you would oppose that law. That's natural. And so the lesson we learn from this, this is a fundamental truth for us as human beings, is this, and it's a trademark phrase I use, and that is this, imposition creates opposition. The opposition does not even exist until the imposition creates it. It never even happened. You were perfectly happy in your life until all of a sudden somebody wants to ban something you love to do or ban something you love to have. You had no opposition. You were happy. But then suddenly imposition creates opposition. And what we've discovered is this is something we all have, and it's what I call imposerism. You have it. I have it. We all have it. It is our willingness to impose on others. 
it comes from the root word impose, which means to thrust something upon someone that's not welcomed by others. Put an R at the end of impose, and you have imposer. Put ISM at the end of that, you have imposerism. That's our willingness to impose on others. And it is our imposerism that is our – what? I, I, I like what you're talking about with imposerism because I've had friendships I've had to put distances because the other person assumes the teacher and I, the pupil, and they're imposing, giving me advice I don't want, don't need, don't ask for, they don't even understand. And uh, it's like, okay, so you're the teacher now. I'm talking about one friend. I walked out of his house. He's cooking dinner, and we love to talk about history and this and that, World War II, Winston Churchill, whatever, okay? And I just – I had to talk with him several times, and imposerism. I like this, this phrase because I even asked him, so are you going to do my laundry and uh, cook me dinner? I'm not your mom. Exactly. Okay, so when did he assume that he was a teacher and I had the pupil? And the problem with that is punishment. Get so frustrated at that. Why can't we be equals and friends and talk about enjoyable subjects? Um, it's really frustrating. And by the way, I love some of your thoughts about the government. You know, I'm a libertarian, and uh, I'm leaning towards going back to the Republicans because of Trump. But um, I've said this before on the show. The federal government doesn't belong in the bedroom, the womb, or the vein. My conservative friends don't like that. I said, well, look, if the founding fathers wanted to outlaw abortion uh, and homosexuality, they would have wrote it in the, in the federal constitution. They didn't, even though they were strong Christians. So they left it up to the states. And the problem I have with the federal government getting involved in social issues is simply this. Once you open that door to social issues for the federal government – you give the federal government a blank check to grow to infinity, and it really concerns me. I think we have some mutual things that we can agree on here. I agree. I definitely agree with that. I would go. I would take that further beyond the imposerism as you described it regarding your friend and bring it to where that imposerism is our vulnerability. It's our weakness and our exploitability because the politicians of either side can tap into our imposerism to rally us to support things that impose on others. So it goes beyond just what you were describing with your friend, but to the issue of force of government imposing on others. And so that we are now in the era of what I call imposer versus imposer politics. And with imposer versus imposer politics, that means an imposer always gets elected, no matter which side wins. It's always an imposer, because if the other side won, it's still an imposer. And this has been going on for decades and decades. Meanwhile, we're busy in our tribalism, fighting each other and fighting each other, tribalism versus tribalism. One tribalism is willing to impose this, another tribalism is willing to impose that, while the politicians are working together as the two sides of the same one coin of imposerism. Because they one side rallies a form of imposition on others, and then that creates opposition and gets us angrier. And the other side becomes in power, and they have a new imposition, and that creates opposition, and that makes people angrier. And so every new trade-off back and forth, we're having more and more impositions, creates more and more opposition, which makes us angrier and angrier. And then we lead to explosion and vengeful imposerism in which we're actually – willing to impose on others for no other reason but to take revenge. And so this is why we're getting so angry with each other is more and more imposition creates more and more opposition because we're in the era of imposer versus imposer politics. And the only way we're going to stop that is that if we do what I call the reverse double negative golden rule, and that is 
We use a double negative, not not. You put the two together, they cancel each other out, and it still becomes a positive. So the golden rule is do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Unfortunately, we found a way to be able to justify that and still impose on others. So we have to clarify the golden rule with what I call the reverse double negative golden rule. And that is do not unto others as you would have them not do unto you. Then instantly, we have fully clarified the golden rule. You would never want to impose on others or think you could impose on others while living under the golden rule. And so if you've got the people from the left not imposing on others and people from the right not imposing on others, we're no longer creating opposition. And that opposition therefore doesn't even exist. We've therefore stopped all the battles and the fighting with each other, and we can start dealing with our real issues. Because when I say to you, I will not impose on you, I free you. You're no longer feeling unsafe or, or excluded or defensive. You no longer feel I pose an existential threat against you. In fact, you might even be willing to work together with me finally. So truly, when I say I will not impose on you, I free you. And so if we all together as individuals, regardless from the left, from the right, if we say I will not impose on you, then the politicians will not be able to ignite our gas. Our gas is the imposerism. They can't bring a spark that creates the flame. And so if we will not let politicians impose, then we can bring an end to this imposition, making more opposition, and we can finally begin to solve our real problems together instead of making them up through imposition of imposer versus imposer politics. Wow, wow, wow. This is interesting because imposing imposer politics causes a lot of division. And the founders set it up. Yeah, yeah, and it's fascinating that your analysis here. I really, I find it's really interesting, and I agree with a lot of things you're saying here on the imposerism side. But so many issues were to be in the hands of the states, whatever they wanted to decide, and the federal government. Okay, whatever you guys do, what you want. You don't like this state, you move to another state. So it's absolutely fascinating. Um, But yeah, this imposerism is is causing so much. Division, Article 9 and 10 of the Bill of Rights are so stunning about how much power the states gave the federal government and no more. And the states can decide what they want to do. Well, actually, I I would go a little farther than that in that I I think that what you're really doing is you're descending from federal statism to state statism. And I don't agree with state statism either, uh, in that I I would say that uh, the 10th Amendment – most, too many people forget ends in the last four words, and that is, or to the people. And that I agree and love the fact the Ninth and the Tenth Amendment are a perfect representation of what we should use and understand when we think of the Constitution. And that is, the Tenth Amendment says that if it's not in the federal Constitution, the federal government has zero authority to be involved in it whatsoever. We later amended that uh, with the 14th Amendment, for example, that the states can't do what the feds can't do. Then eventually we also have to recognize that the 9th Amendment says the opposite, that while the 10th Amendment said the government can only do that which is directly and expressly written in the Constitution, the 9th Amendment says it doesn't have to be in the Constitution for individuals to have rights. Individuals have rights regardless of whether they're written in the Constitution or not. It's a direct complete opposite of the Tenth Amendment. The Tenth Amendment says government can only do what it's allowed to that's spelled out, but rights of individuals don't have to be spelled out. So I love the beauty and the elegance of the contrast between the Ninth and the Tenth Amendment. That's my favorite parts of the entire Constitution because that gives us the full picture of what the Constitution is all about. Well, here's a court case you may have read. 
Prince versus U.S., you know, Sheriff Mack and the gun grabbing by Clinton. And, and so Sheriff Prince and Sheriff Mack got a hold of his law firm that ran them all the way to the Supreme Court. And where the, the Supreme Court says, no, the federal government cannot direct the, the states and local law enforcement to go out and grab guns. Well, in this ruling, Scalia penned brilliantly, in this country, we have a system of dual sovereignty states versus federal government to keep each other in check. And then you go down to the local level. Let's see if, if you would agree with me on this, okay? So my libertarian mentor, um, William Sparkman, amazing man, um, he, he says, why should it be a states' rights issue? It should be down to the local issue. So what if one town says no abortion clinics, another town uh, 10 miles away says, Okay, abortion clinics here are the will of the people expressed locally. You know, and I wouldn't even, uh, you know, if, if you want to go the pro-life route, then don't punish the mother because she has internal, terrible internal uh, punishment within herself, the emotional pain. And the, I've talked with women that had abortions, and they're they're emotionally messed up. So there's a, an individual self-punishment, um, if you will, created by God. But at the same time, um, the locale decides. I call it the Goshen theory. You know, in Egypt, uh, Egypt was suffering under all these these plagues, but Goshen was never protected. So if one town says, okay, um, doctors performing abortion is the same as murder, okay? Another town says, oh, yeah, we can have a abortion here. Well, you go back to the Goshen theory, where God protected the Israelites by the choices they had made because God chose them. But under Goshen theory, you could have pro-life in one town and pro-choice in another and let the people vote. What do you think about taking liberty down to that level? I am two things. One, I, first I want to acknowledge that the idea of disimposerizing, which is our, each individual person's willingness to remove their Willingness to impose on others, to, to cast it off, to disimposerize. And that to do so is something that needs to be at a choice. And that there are obviously going to be situations where we still have disagreement. I'm not suggesting that it's, for example, territorial disputes uh, that have been decimated. You know, the whole uh, uh, Israel and Palestine, you know, debate of, of land and territory and all that. And, and as a Christian, I have certain views and all that. But I'm, I'm simply saying that I understand disimposerizing isn't going to solve that, except that if the people who come to the table uh, to that have disimposerized, then there is a greater opportunity to solve those real problems. With that said, I would say that I can also see what I believe. I, I use the word prenatal infanticide. I don't believe the term is abortion. I believe it's actually prenatal infanticide. Uh, and I do actually believe that, and I do believe that the liberty of the uh, baby in the womb is just as important as the baby out of the womb. And that just prenatal is the only di di difference. Uh, that is where I am uh, religiously. I also acknowledge that I can see that in, through the lens of imposerism and the, the issue of that, that the, 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 those of us who would view it as prenatal infanticide certainly see that it is imposing murder on the baby, and that I can see on the other side that, that they were saying that that is imposerism, imposing uh, 
ban on being able to, you know, my body, my choice, which that all seems to be, parenthetically, I have to add, that all seems to have gone out the window with COVID-1984. My body, my choice apparently no longer applies when it comes to mask mandates or vaccines, but that's another discussion. <laughs> oh, that, that, that's a good point right there. Yeah, good point. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I want to throw this out to you, okay? And see if you've ever found in scriptures that God gives a precise, specific command against abortion. And I'm not saying I'm, I'm pro-choice here, but there was all sorts of specific commands like don't muzzle the ox while he's treading grain. That's a very specific command. Don't sleep with your sister. Don't sleep with your dad's, uh, don't sleep with your dad's uh, wife. You know, there's some very specific things, but specific I find no specific um, command against abortion, and the reason why I think that happened was because the intrinsic penalty when a woman kills her baby, she's also killing a part of herself because the mother, the mother and the baby are one. And just the emotional trauma I've seen, uh, women get pressured into an abortion, and then they they become a mess emotionally. Um, but have you found any precise, specific command in the Bible against abortion? Well, if I frame it as prenatal infanticide, I find thou shalt not murder existing uh, that way. Um, but I, I want I want to get back to the imposerism aspect of that, and that is that while. I, I have to at least acknowledge that from the opposition or to that perspective, that those who are pro-abortion, if you will, uh, that they they interpret it as an imposition on them for not allowing them the choice to do so. And I acknowledge that that is a conflict of imposition. That we're we're you know we're saying that uh, abortion is an imposition on the baby, and the other side is saying that. Uh, Banning abortion is an imposition against their freedom to do so, uh, and I recognize that. And I'm saying that the disimposerizing issue isn't going to necessarily solve the conundrum of that one particular area and issue. But with that said, if both sides come to the viewpoint as disimposerized, then we can look for alternatives. And for example, one such alternative that I've come to, to acknowledge is that those who want abortion are not so much – about wanting to uh, kill babies and, and murder the baby in the womb. They're, they're actually, what they really want is they want baby no more, I call it, baby no more. They just don't want the baby there anymore. They just want to do whatever they need to do to move on life. And so I'm wondering why we aren't focusing our time, resources, and energy on finding a solution to be able to remove babies alive from within the womb and be able to, instead of using baby gets killed, we got baby gets relocated, and that we find a technology to be able to do that in a way that the baby can still grow and become a viable human being. Um, that's where I would like to see us come together, and I think that if we can do that, we can create a win-win uh, with both sides coming as disimposerized. That's not saying disimposerizing solves it, but it means that when the parties come together as having disimposerized, then they're seeking win-win. They're not trying to impose on the other. I'm not trying to impose on the fact someone wants to no longer have a baby, and the woman who doesn't want the baby is no longer trying to impose the murder on the baby. Then we've solved that problem in a win-win, and that's where I think disimposerism, disimposerizing ourselves because we recognize we don't want to have that imposerism anymore allows us – 
frees us to think win-win for the other side and to be able to actually try to find solutions to the real problems that really do uh, beset us rather than finding the foolishness that the problems that only exist because we are imposing, creating opposition, and then we make it worse uh, by demoralizing, dehumanizing, and demonizing them, and that creates the explosion of emotion that leads to hurt and vengeance. Oh, you really gave me something to think here tonight about imposerism. Um, because when government gets into moral issues, then I say yes, I say no, I say yes, no, pick an issue, whatever, okay? And it causes incredible division. Well, let me ask you one question. Do you believe socialism is forced compassion? No, I don't believe it's compassion at all. I, I really don't. I, I, I think it is totalitarian. <laughs> That. Oh, that's hilarious. I love that. That's one of the best responses I've heard in a long time because, because you know, you get uh, – oh, my gosh, that's hilarious. I'm, I'm sitting here with a neighbor. He's listening to the show too, and he's laughing. Um, oh, my gosh. Well, um, so, you know, some people, oh, I care about other people, and, oh, I do too. I help the homeless. Um, anyway, we're a homeless well, show. Well, you know, that's, so, that, but see, that's – that's the point of, imp- of disimposerizing. Disimposerizing is actually a deeper level of kindness, and that deeper level of kindness is actually a deeper level of love. Because when I say to you, I will not impose on you, I free you. I, I give you a sense of comfort that you can now be willing to work together with me because I no longer pose an existential threat against you. And so to me, that's compassionate. I am a believer in the individual. I do not I believe that we the people is a phrase that has been hijacked to mean wrongly the we collect the we the collective. So I use the term instead, we the individuals, because that's what the real meaning of we the people was supposed to be. We the individuals. It is not we the collective. I do not believe uh, in a majoritarianism. We are not a democracy because for example, here's an example. I, I, I went to college. I got two degrees in three years with a 4.0, and, and I'm a guy who has the ability to smart. I, I, I'm up there a little bit in the intelligence. I have a number of other weaknesses and all that, but when it comes to study and learn things, I, I'm, 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 not, you know, I, I'm, I'm doing okay. I've got a number of other faults, but this is one thing that I'm good at, and that because of that, if I walk into a room, we'll just say there's a guarantee that 70, 80, some would say 90 percent of the people in that room are not as smart enough as smart as I am to make the decisions for my own life. And so if I don't believe 90% or 80% or even 70% of the people are smart enough to make a decision for my life, I sure as heck don't believe 51% of the people are smart enough to make a decision for my life. I believe in the individual making their own decisions, and that imposition creates my opposition automatically. I don't have opposition until you seek to impose it. And so that's why I think socialism is a collectivism that crushes the individual. I believe in the individual. I do not believe in the collective. And socialism is nothing more than the collective, and I oppose the collectivism, and I oppose the collective, we are not a democracy. We are a constitutional representative republic, and I believe in the individual. So resistance isn't futile for all those Star Trek fans out there. (laughs) Well, that's it. The collective is the Borg. That's exactly what it is. We are the Borg. Yeah, I'm a big Star Trek fan. (laughs) The Borg. Oh my gosh! Yeah, wow, this is fascinating. I hope uh, Robert brings you back so we can. I don't know if we're going to debate poly- um, polygamy again or not, but I think uh, 
these other ideas of liberty, uh, I've been trying um, the, the I, yeah, you've got me a lot. You got me thinking, and I love these conversations. And hopefully, Robert will bring you back again to talk about. Well, we're hoping to do a whole episode on it. <laughs> That'll be great, okay. and I'd be glad. To, and I would be glad to do so. The purpose of all this is the fact that I'm I'm needing to move above. You know, if you think of a of a like a circle, and that circle is the polygamy topic, and I'm expanding out into a wider circle on the issue of imposerism. And that is that if I can help people see the world through the lens of disimposerizing, whether you're from the left or from the right, and that if you will join me and, and you recognize imposition creates opposition, that you learn to ask the three test questions. Who is the imposer? What is the imposition? And who is the opposer? And then to choose to disimposerize yourself, that when you do that, you will come to be able to do that and approach it also to other topics such as polygamy. Because if you've disimposerized yourself, you will want to learn what actually is about polygamy and not want to impose on unrelated consenting adults. And that's why I call it UCAP, unrelated consenting adult polygamy. It is about unrelated consenting adults. So it's got nothing to do with crimes. It's nothing to do with incest. Uh, it's got nothing to do with children. It's got nothing to do with extraterrestrial aliens even. It's unrelated consenting adult polygamy and that if you will disimposerize yourself, all these other issues, you will also choose not to impose and you will not impose on those making the free choice that makes sense for them because in some circumstances it does make sense for them to choose unrelated consenting adult polygamy. And so that's why I, I'm, I've I'm moving on to this larger topic to reach a larger audience, and the more of us we can solve – basically, imposerism is our path to end our angering, divisive tribalism, that we can start actually working together to solve real problems together like we just discussed earlier about prenatal infanticide. Hey, can I, well, can and I then with that, guys, um, with that, guys, I have a feeling this would have been uh, – well, we probably could have squeezed another hour out, but unfortunately, we don't have that. Um, so definitely, Mark, we definitely want to have you on the show to talk more about this, and um, you know, we'll we'll talk about the advocacy too. Because I mean, I mean, I'm I'm on board. I mean, I'm on board with with both of those, frankly. Um, so I do want to give each person. Uh, we don't got quite uh, maybe a minute for closing comments, and then I have to close things out. So we'll um, we'll get it with you, Kelly. One minute for closing comments, and then our guest here, Mark. Uh, Please comments, and I have to shut the things down for the night. But uh, no, appreciate it, Mark. I'm glad we finally uh, were able to get you on the show. But uh, go ahead, Kelly, and then uh, you, Mark, that have to close things out. Thank you. Thank you. Well, well, well Mark, uh, you know we're, we're going to disagree on the polygamy thing, and I guess I'm going to have to ask if you're imposing. I want to tease you. I want to tease you. Okay, are you imposing <laughs> polygamy? On, are you imposing polygamy on me? <laughs> no, because no, you just what, have I know. I, just I'm just teasing, to, but it's an option. Yeah, you don't well, have to take the option. Well, that's but true. I don't have to like, take the option. The, yeah, it's the, uh, like you got. Yeah, it's like you got a choice between a chocolate chip cookie and an Oreo. You don't. We're not making you eat the Oreo. You can have the chocolate chip right. cookie if you want. Exactly. <laughs> well, I, I. Well, I find it hard enough. Well, to or better yet, Kelly. Rook, I know I'm taking up the top of the closing comments, but I, I, you, you, you got my, my. Creative, uh, <laughs> you know. Actually, Kelly, we're not going to make you eat two chocolate chip cookies. You're welcome to eat just the one uh, Oreo cookie. 
That might be a better oh. analogy. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yes. Right. Well, that's, I mean, I'm just teasing. It's kind of cool. But, you know, I've, I've seen my, my parents just dearly loved each other. And I've seen these uh, sweetheart older couples together for life. You know, some marriages work, some don't. Um, but I do like some of the other liberty aspects that you're, you're talking about. And I'm looking forward to uh, next time you come on the show. Well, thank you. Then go ahead, uh, go ahead, Mark, and with your closing comment, then I'll uh, close things out. Thank you very much. I appreciate this. I appreciated this entire evening. I've definitely appreciated and enjoyed having the conversation with you, Kelly, as well as with you, Robert. I repeat what I had said earlier, that I appreciate the kindness with which you conducted yourself with me, Kelly, even in the areas where we had disagreement uh, on that. And uh, I will be most emphatic. I am not imposing polygamy on anyone. <laughs> you know, it, it, the example of allowing the choice that it makes sense. It makes no sense that in this era of marriage phobic males and abandoned single moms that we're going to criminalize, criminalize, actually criminalize, as well as criminalize the free speech of men who actually want to grow up and want to care enough for women that women would want to be their wives, even as a polygamist. And so that kind of growing up is what I'm actually talking about. And so I'm not imposing that. And absolutely, I do believe that when we all come to understand that imposition creates opposition, we're creating the reason why someone else is going to oppose it. And so that when we can disimposerize ourselves, we can create a better world for each other because we no longer want to alienate or impose on others. I would like to see that as something going forward. This has been a great night. Thank you so much for having me, Robert. I look forward to talking with you again. And again, Kelly, thank you so much for your conversation with me too. Just a great night overall. I appreciate you both. Thank you. I appreciate it. We'll talk more and definitely want to get this uh, spread more with uh, imposerism. And um, I don't have time to go over what we're working on for next week, uh, but you know, I'm it's part of some events and some organizations I've been uh, with these past couple of weeks. So we'll talk more about that. But I will uh, end tonight uh, with the song by Aubrey Ashburn. And we do thank everyone for coming tonight. Definitely uh, share the link for the show tonight or uh, share it on the different podcasts. And we will see you all next time. Uh, take care and have a good night.
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Over and prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.